This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition, with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I have had on this show, and there's a reason they're all using FizzyVantage. Visit FizzyVantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I take that one every day. I'm rocking the peach mango flavor right now. The performance boosting Endurex, that's great for sport climbers and trad climbers, and their delicious protein supplements, weapons grade whey, and the plant-based PowerPlex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I use the repair cream almost every single night, all the time. I use it multiple times a night if I'm climbing in a sharp and crimpy area like Waco Tanks or Leavenworth or some of the other places I like to climb. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin's torn up, I wash my hands and then I apply repair cream several times throughout the evening. And it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster and getting me back on the rock the next day. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you want to learn more about how to use Rhino products and which ones might be right for your skin or for the rock type that you like to climb on, I recorded an episode with founder Justin Brown, who's a friend of mine, way back in episode 22. That's still a great episode, and I still highly recommend it. So check that out to learn more. One final time, rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast, where it is my job to extract as many nuggets of wisdom and insights as I can from my wide range of guests. Sometimes those nuggets have to do with performance rock climbing and training and how to improve at our sport, and sometimes those nuggets have to do with day-to-day life and how to thrive as a human. There are many of both types of nuggets in today's episode. My guest today is Matt Wright. You can find him at Matt Wright Climber on Instagram. That's Matt with one T. This guy has burst onto the trad scene in the UK with some very impressive repeats and first ascents of some of the hardest and most dangerous trad routes in the UK in the last few years. Matt's a very impressive and well-rounded climber. And he's got a very interesting backstory. Matt is a self-made man. That'll make a lot more sense to you after the first 15 minutes or so of this interview. He comes from very humble beginnings and basically got himself into climbing and taught himself how to climb with very few resources and got so good so quickly. Matt climbed 514C or 8C+. And V13 or 8B for bouldering within his first three years of climbing. And he's continued to progress. 
He's really diversified his skills. He's climbed, like I said, some of the most difficult and dangerous trad routes in the UK now with a repeat of Neil Gresham's lexicon. We talked about that one. And yeah, he's put up some really bold first ascents that will be featured in the upcoming Brit Rock Film Festival. Matt is featured in a film called Hard Git by filmmaker Alastair Lee, which will be in the new Brit Rock Film Tour. And that is available this week. The online streaming for the Brit Rock Film Festival happens November 9th through 13th. So that's later this week. I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. Keep it on your radar it's going to be really fun. So this was a great episode. Matt's a really wonderful guy. I really enjoyed getting to know him and talking to him. He's a very impressive climber and just a really thoughtful dude. I thought there were a lot of great stories and insights in this conversation. I should give you guys a light warning. We started off immediately talking about his upbringing and his home life as a kid and some of that was pretty intense. We didn't go into much detail, so it's not terribly graphic, but it's very intense. Just wanted to warn you before we jump into the interview. It's a beautiful and fascinating story, Um, but yeah, pretty intense, so just be ready for that. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Matt Wright. Nice glasses, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, those are sweet. Bit of a pain with uh, climbing. I usually wear sunglasses when I'm outside, funnily enough. I've got sensitive eyes, so I just end up getting these like weird headaches if I don't have sunglasses on. Okay. Some people think, I think some people think I'm just being arrogant, but (laughs) it's actually not the case. I know I do genuinely need to wear them. (laughs) Do you have, do you have prescription sunglasses that you wear when you're climbing? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely helps a lot. It seems to be a question that a lot of people have. So yeah, it's probably quite easy just to answer it as, yeah, yeah, I've just got sensitive eyes. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah, Interesting. Right on. Yeah. Well, yeah, those, those glasses that you're wearing right now are, uh, they're a fashion statement. They're sweet. Are they silver? They're like like shiny. Yeah. These are thing in America or, uh, I mean, over here, I think a lot of people seem to wonder why I wear glasses and climb, but yeah. I don't know. I just haven't been smart enough to get contacts yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, Matt, it is great to meet you over Zoom. Yeah, great to meet you too. Nice to put a face. Yeah, nice to put a face to the voice. voice. We got a chance to talk on the phone last week, but it's great to see you and uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this actually. So should be good fun. Right on, man. Me too. I think we should start. Are you ready to dive in, by the way? I just kind of launched in. I think we sound good. Sound check is great. I'm ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, perfect. I think we should start by talking about your upbringing, actually. Um, you and I talked on the phone you know, a few days ago, and I was asking you something along the lines of what would make you proud of this episode? What do you want to get out of doing the podcast? And you said that you want to inspire people that come from a similar background to you. And I think that's interesting coming from a white guy from the UK who's a professional climber. Um, And then having learned a little bit about your background, I'm like, wow, yeah, you have a really unique story. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. And if I'm putting you on the spot here, we haven't talked about this, but I'm curious if you can share, if anything comes to mind, a distinct childhood memory that kind of captures 
your childhood. Is there is there anything that kind of jumps to front of mind when I ask you that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there definitely is, but some of it I definitely can't share just because a lot of it is probably quite disturbing. Um, I mean, there's just the, like struggles of have, not having a lot of money and just kind of the way that people operate in those areas. It's very different to, I think, people from slightly better backgrounds. Yeah. And um, I think like a, a standout memory, I remember... Uh, having to threaten one of my mom's old previous boyfriends to but well, I literally threatened to kill him and I was about, I was like eight years old at the time um because I remember him hitting my mom. Uh and like I kind of feel weird sharing that because I don't share that with many people. But I'd say that kind of encapsulates a little bit of what I had to kind of be around when I was a kid. Mm. But yeah, I mean I'm kind of like obviously that's fairly fairly vague. So I don't mind about sharing that. But um like just kind of some of the stuff and essentially because of the troubles that we were facing in the household I think I dealt with things very very badly when I was a kid and it often meant you know I'd kick off and um, kind of have all kinds of you know family dramas going on and that led to me ended up um, being kicked out of school when I was in year three and since then from year three until year 10 um i don't know how it works in the states but essentially throughout primary school and half of secondary school i went to a behavioral boarding school where my education was non-existent didn't learn anything not even the basics and i just had to learn all of my gcses uh from uh just through year 10 and 11 really so I essentially wow. started school during my gcses so it was really difficult to pick all that up but I think something that I learned through that is I didn't actually really belong in the school that I was in. It was just like a result of the um, environment that I was in at home. And I feel kind of weird saying this because I feel like I'm kind of making my mom out to look like a bad parent or something like that. But I really do think that my mom did the best job she possibly could have. And yeah, um, I think she was only kind of subject to just common issues that we have in that area. It's not even as if my mom did a bad job or anything. It's just, um, you know, you can't kind of help the situations you're in sometimes. And that's just the reality of it. Yeah, totally. And, and from what we talked about, um, it sounds like I can totally see that. I mean, absolutely no judgment on your mom. Sounds like single mom growing up in a low income area. Um, can you paint a little bit of a picture of what you're uh, situation looked like. I think you mentioned government housing. Yeah, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in a council estate, which is essentially it's, um, like I don't think it really gets much worse than that without being homeless. Essentially, it's like um, supported housing that the government provide towards. Um, a lot, I guess a lot of like single moms and stuff like that tend to live in uh, council estates, but that also means you get kind of a lot of trouble in these areas because essentially it just attracts the poorest communities and um there's definitely a worse areas in the uk there's a lot worse so I, I feel kind of weird saying that it's like particularly bad but i'm starting to realize the older i get that it actually is worse than i ever realized around that area uh, and some of the stuff that i experienced when i was a kid it just isn't normal mm. where, where was that what part of the uk it's kind of on the outskirts of Warsaw, which okay. is 
that makes up part of the black country, which is it's got a reputation for being very industrial and um, not a lot of outdoor stuff. They're like, I couldn't get into climbing or anything like that when I was a kid. I just had to pick it up on my own terms and I was old enough to discover it for myself. So that's what makes, I mean, yeah, that's what makes you really interesting. Um, and I'm really curious to hear how you found climbing and how you got your foot in the door, because that's something that I think about a lot doing this podcast. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to be aware that I want to share helpful information to everybody, but a lot of people that are going to be able to take the most away from the podcast are affluent people who have the means to go to the gym and buy a membership and buy all this stuff. And I know there's a lot of people out there who have much more difficult circumstances and I don't want to alienate everybody. You know, climbing's got not probably not the highest barrier to entry. It's not like snow skiing or something, but, um, but it's not easy to get into. So how did you start climbing? What did that look like? Uh, I mean, it, definitely a combination of luck and really hard. <laughs> I've got like a very strong mind. And if I decide I want to do something, then I absolutely will stop at nothing to make it happen. Um, so what, what basically happened is when I was 13, I had like a really big argument with my mom and I ended up being kicked out of my home and had to move in with my dad, which my dad lives in South Wales, which is, well, it's a good three, four hours from my mom's. And I didn't speak to anybody from my family for a good while. And whilst living with my dad, um, sorry, I've kind of worded that really weirdly, but yeah, basically I ended up moving in with my dad from 13 till 18. And this was the first time I'd met him. He was in the army. Wow. Um, like I kind, of, I kind of met him a few times before that, but I really didn't know him at all. And I went from kind of not really knowing him to living with him. And for a little bit, the grass was greener until I kind of got a sense of what my dad was really like. And essentially it just kind of led to me not really feeling like I had a family as such. And that led to um, me just really, really getting into recreational activity. So I was really into mountain biking, especially downhill. And um, kind of something changed when I was 16. I just felt myself not really um, getting what I wanted out of mountain biking anymore. So I kind of started Googling, oh, you know, I kind of thought, oh, rock climbing sounds cool. And I always <laughs> wanted to be a rock climber. Why, and, why is that? Did you see it in magazines? Like what was your perception of climbing and and why is it that it was on your radar at all? I think I was really lucky in that when I, uh, when I went to these behavioral schools, they had these things called outdoor pursuits, which is when you get took on a outdoor experience like once a week. So we got took doing all sorts like mountain biking we went climbing a couple of times and kayaking um it kind of doing i guess just stuff that's very different to like conventional education um and then so i kind of knew that climbing existed through that and then when i ended up um googling rock climbing in south wales funnily enough there was a ton of sandstone quarries on my doorstep literally five minutes walk from my house mm. uh, on my dad's house um, so I discovered that when I was 16 and essentially I just started bouldering in my trainers at the base of these quarries and then um, started soloing routes and it just kind of got bigger and more cool and then I got the right gear and it just kind of all naturally kind of grew. But the funny thing is, is that I only had like one partner for a little bit and I only climbed with him like a couple of times. Most of my climbing was rope solo or just soloing or bouldering. Um <laughs> 
So, and I did that up until probably about um, 18. And then I built, I ended up then moving back to my mom's. Yeah. <laughs> and she allowed me to build a board in the back garden. I just essentially trained like mad whilst I was learning to drive. And then once I could drive, I started going outside, climb my first 8B, a sport route. Um, then, yeah, it wasn't long after I climbed a route called Mecca, which was Britain's first 8B plus. And then Make It Funky, which is my first 8C. And then, like within um, just three years of climbing, I ended up climbing 8C plus and um, V13, uh, which... Yeah, so 514C and, and V13 for people listening. That That is incredible. You told me that on the phone and I was thinking about it more. And I really think that has got to be the fastest progression I've ever heard of. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, like I'm really, really proud of it. And um, I think something that's quite interesting is that I, I really do feel like we're climbing it. Obviously, the injuries and stuff exist, but if you really, really, really want it, then climbing can really take you anywhere. And this is something that I really learned and it gave me an identity that I never had before. So it just meant that like, as soon as I had this, I just put every single ounce of my energy, every thought that I had into performance and wanting to make the most out of it. Mm. What did climbing bring to your life that wasn't there before? Can you expand on that? Oh man, climbing brought everything to my life. I, I went from kind of feeling like I kind of had no purpose and no existence and feeling like I had poor family life and all that stuff to then feeling like I had everything. And I, it introduced me to friends, it introduced me to passion, inspiration, motivation, just like it, just like every single positive thing you could possibly imagine came to my life when I discovered climbing. Mm. And uh, I think that goes for a lot of people. I meet an awful lot of people that have been in that situation. And yeah, I mean, climbing's freaking great, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have a very different story, obviously, but I, I can kind of... I mean, I think we all have that feeling if you're passionate enough about climbing to be listening to a climbing podcast, you kind of get it. And for me, I got a chance to grow up doing all sorts of outdoor recreational activities with my family and had a great family life. And we'd get to go snow skiing and, you know, backpacking and traveling and mountain biking together and all these things. And I always enjoyed all of it. And I was really into music on my own. And um, I was always looking for something that felt like my thing, you know, none of those other things quite captivated me the way that I saw friends get captivated. Like I had a friend who, you know, was also a musician, but he would sit in his room and practice eight hours a day. And I was like, I don't have that. I love music, but I don't have whatever that is. And I want, I want it. I want to taste that. I want to see what that's like. I want to, I want to be so inspired and like, motivated by something or just in love with something that I work really hard at it because I love this idea of, you know, pursuing potential and, and things like that. And climbing was the first thing that really, that I really connected with on that level. It was like, whoa, I'm willing to like change all these other things about my life to try to get better at this thing. That's interesting. That's cool. That's new. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, climbing just does that to people, doesn't it? Like once it grabs you, it really does grab you and it it's so fascinating, I think, just how um, just how much it really changes people's lives. Yeah. 
yeah, I, th- I, th- I kind of don't really know how to build on that, but it is <laughs> it is just crazy, isn't it? Just yeah. how much of an impact it has on people. Well, I, th- I think it's fascinating. I mean, one thing that's really different about your story, I mean, aside from your upbringing, because most people that I talk to on the show, you know, their parents are well off or their parents were climbers and, you know, they had the means. Like they were given, um, as a child, they were able to go to the gym all the time and and be on the climbing team or whatever it was. So obviously that's different, but you're also such a self-made man in the sense of climbing. Like most people that I talk to that, um, that didn't climb on a kid's team and didn't live in a city with a big gym or something, they kind of, a lot of climbers get lucky with mentorship, right? They meet someone in their life who can kind of take them out, show them the ropes, you know, throw them on belay and say, Hey, I'm going to try my thing. You know, don't let me die. And it's just like this, dive into the deep end, but with somebody else, with this mentor figure. And I think it's really interesting that you just went out and did it. You're soloing in your trainers and then you're somehow figuring out how to rope solo uh, before you've even really, you know, spent much time climbing with a partner. Tell me about Neil Gresham's masterclass videos. I think that'd be a good place to go next. Oh man, if it wasn't for Neil Gresham, I would not be the climber I am today. Uh, and I, I really mean that. I've studied those masterclass videos day in, day out. And, um, you know, I need to, I would hands down put my entire climbing career credited towards Neil Gresham. Like, I think that what's interesting about those videos is they offered me that mentorship that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And, um, like, they're, they're really, really good and educational. And they were made, like, in the, in the 90s, were they? I mean, they're really old and they're, it's just so good. Um, yeah, but I think in terms of, um, in, in terms of being like a self-made man in what you say, I think I was kind of forced to do that from a young age. And I think something that's quite interesting is the more objection I had against me, my success, like the more people doubted me, the more people told me, oh no, you'll never be a professional, uh, which is kind of, a pretty fair thing to say considering I've been climbing for a few weeks and telling people I wanted to be a professional <laughs> and but the more people told me no the more it kind of drove me to want to prove them wrong mm. and like I really just had this um fire inside that made me want to do these really really hard things and that's when I set my mind on Hubble I just was like man Hubble was the hardest street in the world I'm going to climb Hubble one day and yeah, I put everything I possibly could into that dream. How old were you and how far along were you in your climbing when that became a goal? I think I must have been climbing for maybe uh, a few weeks. This was this was when <laughs> I <laughs> this so is when cool. I first met um, this is the first climbing partner I had who mentioned it to me actually. Um <laughs> Yeah, he told me, oh, there's this route in the Peak District. It was the hardest route in the world. And I was like, what? It's in the Peak District? Everywhere in the world, it's in the Peak District? I was like, I can do that one day. I'm going (laughs) to do that one day. (laughs) That's so sick. I love that, that confidence. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. Tell me more about that. So you climbed it. Yeah, you climbed it um, three years ago. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, three years ago. How long have you been climbing at this point? I actually don't know that. Uh, I was trying to work this out the other day. It's between eight and nine years, I believe. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, it's some, I think it's at least eight years. Okay. Yeah. Incredible. So you climbed Hubble, you climbed your first 14C somewhere around the three-year mark, and then you climbed Hubble, 
which is, you know, also 14C or D. Um, seems like there's some different thoughts around that one, but certainly was yeah. the hardest route in the world at the time either way. Um, you climbed it three years ago. It sounds like you'd been thinking about it for your entire climbing career, putting a lot of weight on it, a lot of buildup. I'm sure it had a lot of meaning for you. How did it feel when you actually did Hubble? I think I think this is interesting because it seems like that was kind of your North Star, like the, you know, the pinnacle achievement that you could imagine in climbing. And then it didn't deliver what you thought it would deliver. Is that right? I don't mean to answer for you, but. Yeah, I mean, that's bang on. I mean, uh, to be completely honest, that's exactly what happened. I kind of expected to feel on top of the world and like, oh man, I've just made my dream come true. But um, yeah, I don't, I'm not entirely sure why, but when I did it, I didn't quite get what I wanted out of the experience. So I'm, I still to this day don't understand why, but I just kind of felt that the minute I'd done it, it felt like any other route that I'd done. And I just wanted to move on to the next thing and climb another really hard thing. And I really enjoy a process on something. And the minute it starts feeling like a, like it's action time, performance time, like send time, that's when it starts to get a little bit, little bit tough for me. And I think because I put so much weight and so much emphasis on Hubble, it kind of meant that when it comes to send time, man, like I really, really like drive, drive myself nuts. And I found, I just found it really hard to deal with it because mm. I, I kind of felt like I've been building up to it for so long. And then to finally be saying that I can do this route and I'm going to do this route and like, it could happen any session. It just felt like, um, really, really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, it just meant that it took a lot out of the actual ascent itself. Mm. And I think something that I've learned from it really is that like, if I decide I want to do something, I need to be a little bit more organic with it and just focus a little bit more on just enjoying the experience and taking each step as it, as it comes. Um, which I've been a lot better at since and like getting into trad has been really good for me in that sense. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think what you're describing is something that a lot of people experience. I, I mean, I, I can certainly, I, I can certainly resonate with what you're saying that, um, like, I think that's my least favorite part of the red pointing process on boulders, on roots, doesn't matter, but it's so exciting to make the progress and to do the hardest moves for the first time and to find new beta. And it's, it's like, I think the pinnacle um, feeling for me is that moment when you know you can do it, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can actually do this thing. And it's so exciting. Oh yeah. The next chapter is so heady and so hard. You're like, okay, I can do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it any try. I could do it today. And then you're just punching the clock and trying not to go insane, you know, and, and what you're describing about like wishing you had been more organic with it. I think that's really interesting too, because it's hard to know what to do there. I think you almost, sometimes it depends on the project. It depends on the circumstances in the season and how much more time you have if you're on a trip or whatever. But sometimes you almost do need to kind of like force it and become a little bit of a robot and keep going back and trying and trying and centering your whole entire life around it. And then other times you can kind of just go with the flow and, you know, like follow your inspiration and, and kind of enjoy the process and get good results as well. But there definitely doesn't seem to be like a formula, you know, every project is different. Every climber is a little different, but a lot of people, I think 
share a similar sentiment. Like that's kind of the most miserable part of the climbing thing. It's those moments where we ask ourselves like, what the fuck are we doing out here? You know, like we're supposed to be having fun and like, we're just going to work and just punching the clock, you know, and and what's it all for? So, um, yeah, I I think that's, I think that's interesting. How long was that process for you on Hubble? Uh, I think I started, it started getting quite negative. I think around, I think about 15 sessions in. And then it was maybe like 10 sessions of banging a head against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting what you said there. I think there's a lot to be like a, a lot to be said there. And I think um, you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of it. Sometimes you really need to force yourself to do these things if you want to actually see a process through. Um, we, it is so hard to get this right. Because if you don't do it, you'll never reach a limit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's such an unpleasant feeling that it, or like it can be such an unpleasant feeling, I should say, that mm-hmm. it actually can have quite the opposite effect of what these things should be for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it, for me, I've kind of realized that the trick is just to really pick the roots that I want to do that with. And to if something, if I really want to do something, then it's worth it. If I, so like on reflection, Hubble was worth it because I'm extremely proud of it. And, um, like, I don't think I ever would have moved on from that phase of my life had I not done it. Um, where, and I'm really, really glad that that phase is over so that I can pursue trad like I'm doing now. And because I'm now pursuing something that I feel is a little bit more me, it's easier for me to feel like I'm, enjoying that process, even when it does get quite tough. Mm. Yeah. Let's dig into that. You said that on the phone too, that Hubble helped you realize that sport climbing, hard sport climbing wasn't quite you, wasn't quite the right fit. And then you discovered hard, scary trad climbing, and that did feel like you. What do you mean by that? What felt different about it? What was it about, or what is it about hard trad climbing, especially when there's risk involved that feels like you and i kind of have i don't mean to psychoanalyze but you know i have my own theories it makes sense coming from your childhood and it it kind of reminds me I've, I've been reflecting on this i promise this will make sense in a second but um it's like something that you learn as you get older about dating you know i'm 34 and um i've, I've been like you know dating people over the course of my adult life and something that you notice is that people that grow up in chaotic environments have a really hard time with a healthy, stable relationship. It feels like uninteresting or boring or like it can't be real or something. And they almost gravitate back towards chaos because it's familiar. And yeah, um, totally. And I think, I, I wonder if that's what you feel with climbing. If you gravitate towards something that's a little bit riskier, a little bit more chaos, because that's how you grew up and it's familiar to you. Maybe it feels comfortable. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, I definitely think that could apply to some people, but for me personally, I think it's actually more the opposite. Like, despite me having quite a rough childhood, I'm very positive, I would say, as an individual. Mm. Um, And I do find it quite easy to be optimistic. Uh, So, and the reason why I really like trad is it gives me a chance to really test that optimism because, you know, with these things, there's no choice, really. If you fall off them, you're screwed. So you need to really try to build a very calculated, very um, 
accurate anticipation to what these routes are going to feel like. And I just really get a lie out of that because it just gives me a chance to really test how optimistic I can really be. <laughs> and, you know, if I'm doing something on top rope and I know, like, man, these moves are hard, like no chance am I going to want to, what feels like essentially solo these moves. But then like when you put time into it and it starts feeling really good, it's really, really satisfying. And then the leading process is much more organic because it you only you absolutely only lead something if you know that you're ready for it. Mm. Um, or at least that's how I approach it anyway. Um, and that mindset has so far given me a hundred percent success rate, other than on Rhapsody, but Rhapsody is a safe route, so I don't need to worry about it. But on the bold things, it really is. Um, it's really proven to be a very um, useful way of approaching these routes. Yeah, we'll we'll circle back to Rhapsody in a minute because I think that's interesting what you just said. I mean, it has a reputation for. Uh, I mean, I think Dave McLeod famously like took that massive. Well, the fall's massive no matter what, but I think he like really hurt his ankle on it. So it's interesting that you say it's safe. Maybe you're just meaning that you're not going to hit the ground, which y- you might on some of these other things, um, yeah, which so is the, a different the, level of risk. But yeah, there's some reasoning to explain that, but we'll go into that when we go on to Rhapsody. Okay, for sure. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. But yeah, so that's really interesting. I, I want to explore the line between being positive and optimistic and being reckless. How do you, cause I could see like, obviously there's being overly optimistic. You know, if you're, if you're going to try to lead a E10 or E11, something that's hard and incredibly dangerous and you've done it on top rope, you know, there's overconfidence, which is like, sweet, I did it. I can do it. Let's go, you know, immediately. But you seem to be a lot more systematic and calculated than that. How do you think about that line between being optimistic and being reckless? How do you make sure that you're believing in yourself, but also mitigating risk and not going before you're ready? I think it's, there's, I think it's dangerous to be so black and white with it. Like, I mean, the thing is we're using words like reckless and optimistic is that they're both very strong words. Optimistic is very positive and reckless is very negative. And there's, I think, by wording it like that, you're almost kind of putting labels on feelings when feelings are not black and white. Mm. Feelings are very, you know, kind of different to that. And I think this is why I try to stay away from kind of using such strong words. I mean, I know I've mentioned optimistic a lot, but um, yeah, I definitely am optimistic and everyone says that. But to kind of answer your question, I think they kind of go hand in hand. Like you can't possibly risk your life and not call it reckless. Um, like it, it's a, it's of course reckless, but I think it's when you're very calculated with something, I think it's, um, you can kind of, I think if you can justify it to yourself, then it's not reckless. I think that's kind of the way that I would sum mm. it up. Okay. I'm trying to, does that does that make any sense? Yeah, it, yeah, I think it does. I think it does. We can expand on it more later if uh, if more questions come to mind. But um, I just had this thought listening to you. I mean, I how old are you, Matt? Twenty five. You're twenty five. Okay, so you have this terrible education from you know grade three to ten. I don't know what that means for us in the states. I assume it's similar, maybe like age. 
seven to to sixteen or eighteen, something like that. Is that right? Uh, I think it's probably uh, so it would be age. I mean, uh, year three. I think it's five years old till about thirteen. Okay, I think. Okay. Yeah. So a little younger. Okay. But yeah, so you you basically miss out on the fundamentals of our schooling. And, you know, we could talk about our school system. There's a bunch of problems with it. I think in a large extent, we're just, as kids, we're just taught to like become factory workers and behave and like, you know, do what we're told to do sort of thing. Uh, but you also learn a lot of important fundamentals that you build on later in high school. And it's just hitting me listening to you. You're a very clear thinker. You seem to be a deep thinker and, and very reflective and kind of self-aware. You're well-spoken. You're also a great writer. I was reading some of your posts on Instagram about, you know, your recent ascents and things, some of the um, some of the difficult trad routes that we're going to talk about. How did you oh, end up... You, man. That's really nice. How did you end up doing that? Like, how did you catch up? Are you, are you kind of self-educated? Did you just work your ass off in those later years to play catch-up? Um... Where did that drive come from? Because, you know, you you want to become a professional climber and that's like where your heart and soul is at. What gave you the motivation to um, to become more literate and to become a good writer and become so well-spoken? Like, where did all that come from for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I don't really know the answer too well, but I'd say the majority of it's self-taught. And um, I've been very lucky in that I've had, like, so my past relationship was really good. I had a really supportive partner um, and she was very, very good at teaching me the like a lot about language and stuff like that. And that really helped. And also she believed in me a lot and it made, uh, made it a lot easier for me to kind of deal with the professional side of things. Mm. And, um, and then kind of moving forward again, my current, well, my fiance, Anna, who, oh God, I'm, She's bloody amazing, but yeah, she's taught me like a re a lot about emotion and a lot about um, self reflection, and uh, like we kind of have this amazing relationship where we spend several hours every evening just sitting in the van, phones are off, and we just talk to each other. And that mm. sometimes we don't really do a lot, and then sometimes we go into some really intense conversations where we kind of r really heavily reflect on things, and it's really useful. Mm. Um, so I think I kind of have a life without distractions and spend a lot of time working on myself and thinking about things. I also have a very active mind, I've realized, and I seem to find it very difficult to switch off where a lot of people tend to kind of be a little bit more on a mellow level. Mm. I mean, I've diagnosed ADHD. That's, mm. uh, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty obvious probably. Oh, no, I, I wouldn't have said so. But I mean, it makes sense. I, th I think I see that characteristic in a lot of climbers, like climbing's the thing, especially, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think there's a trend there with um, climb climbers who seek out the type of climbing that necessitates focus, like the risky trad climbing that you do. I, I think I see this in free soloists too, where it's like, it's the one thing that focuses their mind. You know, you have to be fully present. You have to have all of your attention on the thing right in front of you because there's stakes. And um, yeah, it seems like a, a kind of a common outlet, I guess, for, for a busy mind. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's totally what I think climbing offers to me is just a, a way to focus my mind on something that 
I really care about. Mm. And that's kind of the simple way of putting it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I just wanted to say congratulations to you and Anna. And for people listening, um, I hadn't made the connection until we talked on the phone, but Anna Taylor is your fiance. And she was mentioned in uh, my interview with Leo Holding, I think. And um, if she wasn't mentioned, she's certainly um, connected to that interview because she was on that trip that they did to um, Riorama. Is that, am I saying that right? Do you remember how to say that? It's the House of the Gods film where they go down yeah. to Argentina and climb this this big um, wall in the in the middle of the rainforest. Yeah, so it's Mount Roraima. Roraima, So it's yeah. pronounced, yeah. Uh, and it was a 50 mile long approach and uh, up some absolutely heinous uh, environment. And yeah, the Anna actually freed the crook's pitch on it, which was apparently uh, around about French AA. Mm. And um, had Anna not gone on that trip as a 21 year old girl, she, that mountain wouldn't have gone free or that the North Face, uh, sorry, the Great Northern Pro wouldn't have gone free, mm. which I find absolutely incredible because I think nobody, well, I mean, maybe they did believe in it, but I don't think anybody expected that to happen. Mm. Um, so she's really, really blown people away with that. That's so and I'll cool. tell you one thing about Anna is she's unbelievably strong-minded, like very similar to me in that sense. And if she wants something, oh man, she's like really, really goes for it. Mm. Yeah, we're really similar in that sense, which is why I know for a fact that we're really good together. That's awesome. Are you two each other's primary partner when it comes to doing these hard, scary trad routes? Yeah, I mean, me and Anna pretty much only climb together. I don't really climb with other people anymore because um, uh, a few negative things happened last year and I just mm. kind of prefer just to sit in the shadows a little bit nowadays and mm. kind of just go and do things with Anna. But funnily enough, one thing that me and Anna do spend a lot of time doing is uh, co-steering, which is funnily enough, we actually spend more time doing that than we do climbing. Co-steering? Um, yeah, and it, it, it's it's still climbing. Um, do you know what I mean by co-steering? No. I mean, I can kind of so, guess, but but no, please describe it. Yeah. So we essentially go to remote headlands in the Scottish Highlands and traverse sections of sea cliffs. And these can vary from really quite easy angle to overhanging cliffs and um, anywhere from like really quite easy boulder hopping um, all the way up to like, I mean, I think the hardest we've done is probably about 7B and courtesy of Anna as well. She's the one who's done those pitches. So I uh, wimped out on a couple of them, but <laughs> yeah, man, honestly, it's good fun. Cool. Yeah. Like directly above the sea and it's wow. really cold. Are you, are you kind of like multi-pitch traversing? Or are you just like up on the wall? Soloing. Soloing. Got it. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's like really mad. We don't know anybody else that does it, but it's <laughs> it's honestly the best fun you could imagine. Wow. Did you invent it or is this a established thing? Like, will other people know what you're talking about in the UK? I don't know. I've spoken to a lot of people about it and nobody seems to know what it is. Yeah, like co-steering is kind of like a thing that people do, but it's more like jumping off cliffs and mm. um, doing like kind of like easy traversing and things like that. But yeah, what we're doing is like we're, kind of sometimes maxing out on like really hard on sites mm. uh above the water and like the water's freezing we get really bad um like unstable seas in scotland so it's i mean it kind of sounds really stupid and dangerous but it is the best fun you could possibly imagine 
Wow. I, I guess beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm happy for you both. I'm glad that you enjoy it. I don't think that's something that I would ever want to do, but it sounds incredibly powerful. I mean, you have the the power of the ocean, which is, you know, an experience in and of itself just to be near that and then to be taking that kind of risk and on sighting at the same time that you're soloing with yeah, that just seems like wow that's kind of a peak powerful experience yeah. i mean it it kind of probably sounds a little bit more dangerous than what you might think so it's kind of one of those things where fall in the water would be absolutely ridiculously unpleasant but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you might get hurt mm. like um it, it kind of varies so we kind of just assess each pitch as it goes and like if we're looking at it and the sea's too rough and it's actually really quite hard, then we avoid it. But, you know, if we're looking at something that's, I don't know, it looks like a fun, hard traverse and the sea's calm and um, we can go for it. And the only risk that we've got is falling in the freezing cold Atlantic, then we're not too worried about that. Like, mm -hmm. um, like Anna ended up doing this traverse quite recently. That was really hard. I, I ended up wimping out and not doing it, but she got herself onto this, it, like inside this geo which is like a, a section of chiseled out rock essentially like goes directly inland and it ended up being way too hard and overhanging on one side but the other side was a flat wave cut platform so she ended up swimming the gap between the two and it was just so good kind of like, like chimney so climbing it no no she'd like swam the gap between the, oh. um the, between the two walls and oh. like it, it's like properly cold water as well. It's really, really quite amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Man. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's really good fun. I think we're gonna, we're actually going to try and make a film about this at some point. Oh, cool. Like really quite interesting for people to see. What do you and Anna do when you just need to chill out? Do you ever do that together? I mean, you sit in the van and talk. That sounds absolutely amazing. But do you have go-to leisure activities do you ever just take a full-on rest day and do something that's not dangerous or intense or physically challenging yeah so we're really into wildlife we um kind of just look at marine life and look at birds and uh that's that's really good fun um I like we're by no means geniuses and figure this like we don't know the bloody latin names for all the trees and stuff but yeah we just quite like just just sitting and watching the stuff really just mm. seeing how things live and that's that's really good fun and then we also are complete nerds we listen to a lot of metal when <laughs> uh <laughs> we watch things like the walking dead and uh you know game of thrones all that stuff yeah nice so yeah we do we definitely do our fair share of relaxing as well it's probably 50 50 ratio i'd say okay yeah yeah cool yeah it's easy to kind of um project and assume that uh people like you are just go 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 just doing one intense adventurous thing after the after another so oh no it's like sometimes we spend months doing nothing like mm. it's not we're not like all the time going out like sometimes we're like really going at it but that only might be for like a week or two and then mm. um and then we're kind of like sit and chillax for a bit and um like there's definitely phases where we just do very very little and absolutely the bare minimum um, yeah, so I, I definitely don't want to fool anyone into thinking that like 
you know, I'm like the perfect athlete that just does nothing but climb and have fun all the time. Because yeah. that definitely 100% is not the case. <laughs> and do you feel like you've found yourself in hard trad climbing? Is that like, is that like your identity? And is that what, is that all you want to do? Or do you still do a mix? Do you still go bouldering? Do you still go sport climbing? Do you need a break from like the intensity of, of the hard, risky trad climbing from time to time? Or is that just like, you're all in, that's all you want to do? What does that look like for you these days? Uh, it's kind of strange for me at the moment because I still live in my van. I'm actually at my friend's house right now. Um, so uh, I don't really have any structure. Like my life varies massively. And um, like I definitely get a little bit out of fingerboarding. I'll do a bit of fingerboarding in the van, which is obviously quite a, quite chilled. Um, and then... Um, I do a, a little bit of sport climbing and bouldering when I feel like I want to. I don't force myself to go and do it like I used to. Mm. Um, well, like, not as if like I didn't used to force myself. Like I used to really look forward to it, but um, I kind of had like a bit of a, a drive to like make sure that I went and did stuff all the time. Whereas I kind of feel like it's better for me now if I just go as and when I feel like it, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lower intensity periods, I essentially just do the bare minimum. I'll do like a little bit of fingerboarding in the van and, you know, I'll maybe like take walks and, um, I don't know. Um, uh, just trying to think of stuff that I do. It's not, it's not actually, uh, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I do just spend hours sitting on my phone, scrolling through Instagram, doing nothing productive whatsoever. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like again, like I'm just kind of elaborating. I'm definitely not a perfect athlete in that mm. sense. Well, I, th yeah. I mean, I think there's a great insight there because I think, you know, again, the projecting thing, and it's it's so hard to. I mean, I started an entire podcast to try to figure out like what do people actually do because I found it so confusing, right? Like I um, would see all these amazing climbers come through Smith Rock, and I had been reading so much and reading a lot of like Steve Bechtel's work and just diving into climbing training and didn't have a sense of like, like there was a lot of things that were really compelling that I knew were going to help me grow as a climber. But at the same time, I kept meeting all these amazing climbers who just didn't seem to be doing any of that stuff, you know, like they, they had a really pretty simple organic approach where they would just try hard routes when they wanted to, you know, not much else. I mean, they climbed a lot, but, um, but I think it's interesting to hear this because I think we can convince ourselves, especially when we follow great climbers on Instagram, that they're just always either trying a hard route or sending a hard route or breaking PRs in their training or, you know, climbing really hard shit on the moon board or whatever it is. And it's just always on. And um, yeah, it's very easy to do that. I've, I've been guilty of that so much. Yeah. yeah. It's cool to hear that, that at least for you, um, there's way more balance and there's, you, it sounds like you kind of give yourself down times and then maybe when you're inspired, it's more of a sprint. Like you have this goal, you have oh, this yeah. clear thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it's like. I, I, I probably spend um, you know, maybe 60, 70% of my time just taking things at a mellow pace. And then 30% of my time might be like, oh, I want to do this route. So I'm going to train really hard for a few weeks and then I'm going to mm. go and um, send. But I mean, like even by training hard, like all I'm doing is a little bit fingerboarding and just climbing a lot outside. Mm. And 
that's essentially my version of training really hard at mm-hmm. the moment. Um, but had I, if I live in a house and have structure and a wall local, then I'll, you know, do a little bit more structured training. So I might do a little bit of energy systems training or, um, you know, a bit of conditioning and just maybe like a little bit more focused. But again, it's still fairly relaxed. Like I'm not necessarily forcing myself to go and, you know, do a ton of deadlift and pull-ups and all that. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. Fall is here. That means the temps are dropping and it's time to get cozy. And nothing is cozier than bundling up with the Sherpa Puffy Blanket from Rumple. As if the original Puffy Blanket wasn't cozy enough, the Sherpa Puffy Blanket combines impossibly soft Sherpa fleece with their original Puffy Blanket design. As all of you know, I live in a van, and the Sherpa Puffy Blanket has been ideal for adding extra warmth during these crisp fall nights. It's getting cold, and I've been sleeping with this thing every night for the past couple weeks, and it's almost too cozy. I absolutely love it. The Sherpa Puffy Blanket has a stain and water-resistant topside, anti-static and antimicrobial fleece. It's made from 100% recycled materials, and it's machine washable. And it's truly the coziest blanket I've ever owned. It's perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag during the fall season. It's great for camping and just great to have around the house. Watch a movie, cozy up with this Rumble blanket. Head over to rumple.com nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com nugget and use code nugget at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Wonderful Pistachios. You guys know that I mostly eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, and I'm always looking for good crag snacks to bring to the boulders or to the cliff, something with some substance to keep me fueled for hours and hours of climbing. Pistachios are known for their protein power, fiber, and better-for-you unsaturated fats for a combination that may help keep you feeling fuller longer than other snacks. And they're super convenient and so tasty. Their no-shell flavors include the classic roasted and salted, That's my favorite, super basic, I know. Salt and pepper, honey roasted, chili roasted, and smoky barbecue. They are all so good, you literally can't go wrong. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of sizes, perfect for enjoying by yourself or with family or friends, or taking them with you on your climbing adventures. So whether you're hitting the gym after work or heading out on a weekend adventure, Fuel up with a healthy and tasty snack. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Again, that's wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Has that changed over time? You uh, you told me that you trained a lot more when you were younger. Going back to you know your incredibly quick progress in your early years of climbing. Was there more structured training? Was it just a matter of just getting out and climbing outside a ton? Um, what did your, you know, air quotes here, but what did your training look like early on and how's that evolved? Because yeah. now you coach people. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It, it's interesting you say that actually because I, after our conversation, I was thinking, did I really train hard? And <laughs> the, the answer is I did. I did. And I absolutely did train hard but probably not in a conventional manner so Mm. 
I wasn't, again, I wasn't doing deadlift and pull-ups and all that stuff. All I was doing was being consistent and spending, you know, two sessions on, one session off, two sessions on, and just following that cycle of um, day one would be board climbing and I would focus purely on power and strength. And then day two would be usually endurance training. I'd focus on circuits and that that's literally all it would be. And then um, I'd just focus on doing a lot of climbing. And, you know, sometimes I would go outside bouldering for day one and sometimes I would go out doing sport climbing on day two and that's how I'd structure my training. Mm. Uh, and that's simply put how I do it. And if I feel like I need another rest day, I'll have another rest day. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I love that. It really can be that simple. I mean, that's not easy. It's not easy. Like that takes hard work and I'm sure it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of day twos where you probably feel tired and don't want to do all those circuits. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's great to hear it. It's, it's so often that I talk to really strong climbers who just actually have such a simple approach. It's not that complicated. You know, they're not doing body part splits in the weight gym and planning their climbing around that and doing all these different things on the hangboard. It's like, no, they climb a lot. They bring a lot of intention to their climbing. They have, it's not like haphazard. They have a little bit of a plan. Um, and then they're just consistent with it. They just do it day in, day out. You you know, week in, week, week out, like for, for years and years and years. So yeah, that's cool. I mean, th th there's definitely something to be said though, if, if you've got a specific weakness, like sure. let's say for example, you can't do a pull up. Like, mm. I mean, if you want to do well at climbing, you absolutely need to be able to master pull-ups. Mm -hmm. So, and the only way you can train pull-ups or the best way to train pull-ups is by, um, you know, doing pull-ups mm -hmm. and you know, that's just like one example or like if your flexibility is really bad, then you need to work on that. So like, that's where it starts getting quite nuanced, I think. And this is where me being a coach is something that I try to focus on is just really getting on a one-to-one -one friendly level with people and speaking to them about, what it is they want to do and where they currently are and simply put essentially think well what's holding you back from achieving those goals mm. and nine times out of ten they're physically able to do these goals they're just lacking on you know usually flexibility is a really big one um or pace is a really big one and sometimes pace. oh yeah like, like climbing too just, climbing too slowly climbing too slowly or rushing um, like two very big ones. I think understanding the way that you climb and your pace is something that I think has a massive impact on climbing performance. Um, you know, like if, if you find that you're climbing really slowly and chalking up on every move, then obviously like you're just going to end up getting boxed right mm -hmm. really quickly. Um, and I think that also means that when you do get powerful moves, you're less likely to actually deliver that power output that you need because you're kind of in a mindset of relax and chalk up and chill mm -hmm. you know so you need to know like when to flick that switch mm -hmm. um and then i think on the other side of the spectrum if you're rushing you can not rest for long enough in good rests and you can mess up moves you can end up over gripping and over gripping again is like a really really big one that uh, i think like 90 percent of climbers over grip Mm. Like I've seen it so often. Um, and, you know, that leads to injuries. It leads to, um, uh, like, poor mobility. It leads to, uh, I don't know, just issues all around, I believe. And you just end up basically feeling like you've got terrible endurance as well. Mm. When your endurance is probably amazing, but you're just using it all after, like, 10 moves because you're just like... Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean that is that is the fascinating thing about sport climbing. It is that that game and that kind of dance of of um, what's the absolute minimum that you need, you know, to to flow through a sequence or whatever. And um, I mean that's why I think that's why we make such quick progress on routes a lot of the time. You know, like the the first couple tries when you're you still haven't like found the exact right body position or you're still feeling tense about a you know a run out clip or something like that. Um, yeah, you're using up so much more of your energy and then just within a few yeah. repetitions of getting more comfortable on it, you can relax and relax. And it's remarkable how little effort you actually need sometimes to hold on to a hold that feels hard to hold on to at first, you know? Yeah, it's an Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a really good point as well, just like in terms of just, um, you know, the first few goes that you have on something, just feeling a bit spooked and over gripping and stuff like that. I think that's, it, that's a very different thing to, um, kind of that pace that I was talking about. Mm. But at the same time, it's kind of quite an interesting point. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what point I was making there, but yeah, <laughs> they're definitely different things, I think, and that's the kind of yeah. point I was making. But yeah, yeah. no, I, I think pace is fascinating. I'm curious, do you have um do you have like a a goal for people when it comes to their climbing pace, or is it just helping them identify how they climb and embracing how they climb? Because like I've thought about this a lot, you know, when Adam Andra um, kind of first came onto the scene and and became who he is today. He the thing that really stood out to everybody was like this guy climbs like a rocket, you know, like he's just flying up the wall. Yeah. He's so fast and so precise and it's so impressive. And for me, it was really tempting to think like that's what I should shoot for, you know. I should try to be more like Adam Andra and just climb as fast as possible. But then I've always also been a fan of Jonathan Segrist and he climbs really slow and methodically and really technically locked in like he's a technician, you know? Um, And now like Aiden Roberts, you know, like Aiden Roberts doesn't climb very fast, but he's one of the strongest boulders on the planet. So I, I think pace is interesting. Like what, what works the best, you know, like is there, is there a best pace or does it just completely depend on the person and the style um, cause it's intuitive to think that like, oh, you know, we're fighting gravity here. We should spend as little time as possible in an overhang or, or whatever it is. But that doesn't seem to be how it really plays out with some of the best athletes in the world. It seems to be kind of a yeah. spectrum. So how do you think about that with your clients? Are you kind of encouraging them to go towards a certain pace or is it just a matter of helping them identify how they climb? I think this is the beauty of climbing and that it's just varies so much from person to person and there's no right or wrong answer. There's no, like, I, I definitely think climbing slowly is worse than climbing fast. Uh, that's my personal take on it. But at the same time, like, I don't think that necessarily works for everybody. Um, and yeah, I mean, like if you're a kind of a bigger, heavier climber, for example, it might be more beneficial for you to climb fast. Whereas shorter climbers might, because I mean, shorter levers and they're way less, it might actually be better for them to climb slowly. Mm. Um, but that's just a, like a very, very vague black and white answer. But obviously that varies massively. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, you could also argue that taller climbers might prefer to climb slowly so they can utilize knee bars and uh, stuff that shorter climbers might not necessarily be able to use. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer. I think it's just a matter of trying to understand an individual style and try to, um, compare that against 
climbers of a similar body shape or uh, ability that might be worth um, kind of gaining a bit of inspiration from. Mm -hmm. Because like, I think most people tend to pick up their own climbing style fairly quickly, but it's just a matter of fine tuning that Mm. climbing style. I think that's the, the important thing really. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What are, what are the cues that you look for in clients that might lead you to think this person's climbing slower than is ideal for them or faster than is ideal for them? Like, what are the things that jump out at you um, that, you know, people listening to this might be able to identify in their own climbing and use that as kind of like a, like, let's put a question mark around that. Let's explore that, you know, like, let's start thinking about pace. No, it's a, it's a really interesting point and definitely worth discussing. Um, I mean, if a climber's climbing slowly, they you can often see um, repeated moves and such. So I'm trying to explain this, but like, let's say, for example, there's a section of route where there's, I don't know, like a juggy section and people are using every single hold on the way mm. up and they're like climbing really, really slowly. They're choking up on every single move and... Um, they're kind of like, I don't know, like they're, they're using a lot of energy in that position when they could just power it out in three or four moves really fast. And it might use actually even less energy as well doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's like a, a a good example for like sport climbing. It doesn't necessarily apply to bouldering so much, but saying that it does also apply to boulder in some cases. So like there's quite a lot of boulder problems that, have like um kind of like sloper traverses or just sections that tend to have quite sustained moves and again you see people like doing like small moves when they could um do like a really big crossover or uh, something like that that could actually save three or four moves and it might mean the difference between doing that crooks move and failing on it time and time again Mm-hmm. when you know you might think it's the crooks move that you're struggling with but actually you're just wasting a ton of energy on the moves before that mm. mm-hmm. yeah i think that's like an example of uh climbing slowly and then climbing fast is kind of the opposite people are like making mistakes they're bending their arms a lot they're over gripping usually i think people that climb too fast can sometimes have very very or what might look like very very poor power endurance because they just end up essentially just powering out really fast because they're over gripping and just making a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Where if they were more efficient, slowing it down very slightly, they'll actually get more out of their endurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just um, kind of yeah rough things that I've noticed. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. That's that's great. Um, any other things as far as coaching? I, I want to jump into your your trad climbing and make our way towards um, this Brit Rock film that's coming up soon. But yeah, anything else on coaching or training that you feel like is worth talking about? I mean, I've talked about training so much on this show and something I'm I'm getting more and more nervous about is like, are we adding helpful information versus just adding to the noise? You know, I, I, I'm always, yeah. I'm getting more and more hesitant to talk about like sets and reps and things like that because I think it can just become really confusing and um, I don't think it's actually that important at the end of the day, right? Like if you just find something that works for you and, and you're consistent, like you're talking about, but anything else that you feel like is worth touching on that doesn't get much attention or something that you see come up a lot with your clients, um, that seems to be a strong theme that's worth talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think people massively overthink things like so commonly, um, which is easy to do. I mean, there's so much information online and people just seem to think, like, oh, I should be doing this, that and the other when it's pretty simple, really. You just need to make it specific, think about what you're bad at and what's holding you back and work on those things. Mm. And uh, like, you know, that that's kind of all that all that I do, really. Mm. Um, and I guess another thing as well is people just seem to really not believe in themselves a lot of the time. And uh, I see it so often when people are like, you know, I, I don't know, I, like they're really strong and they say like, oh yeah, I want to boulder my first 7B or something. I'm like, man, you can hold a beast, make a middle edge one arm. What do you mean you <laughs> want to climb your first 7B boulder? Like you should be aiming for like 8A yeah, um, or like V11. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it's, I mean, it's so easy to say that right now, but I'm, you know, you, you need to think about the nuances. Um, but I think as a whole, people just do tend to um, not believe in themselves as much as what I believe they should. And mm. I, I do see this with like probably 75% of people, really. Mm. Do you think, is it a key part of your coaching approach to make sure that your clients have a clear goal like you know you you said something at the start of this um this topic where you said you know most people have this big goal they come to me and they're already strong enough and it's just a matter of getting them more time on rock and um putting more time into the actual thing that they want to do because something that i i've changed my mind about for a long time for many years you know i wanted to climb tons of stuff and i had go like short-term goals but i just wanted to become much stronger climber in general. So most of my training was geared around, I just want to become a lot stronger over the next five years or 10 years or something. And I've realized that it actually works a lot better to have a very specific thing that I'm all in on and train for a really specific boulder problem, even if it's a weird move that I might never do again, you know, even if it doesn't seem like the most kind of all round, like holistic, best thing to improve at for like the, you know, for all of my climbing moving forward. But if I focus on that one thing and get better at it and do that climb, then I can pick another one and I can learn the next thing from that next project. And that feels more inspiring. It gives me more focus. So I'm not trying to do too many things at once. Cause that's something I've struggled with. You know, I'm going to board climb and hangboard and deadlift and like do all of these different things all at once, hoping that I just generally become a lot stronger. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you have advice for people that just generally want to get better or stronger at climbing? Or do you think it's important that people have more focused, specific goals? Yeah. I mean, my honest opinion this is what works for me I, I don't believe this works for everybody but for me personally i absolutely need a goal and i think for a lot of people as well the good thing with a goal is it gives you something to focus on it gives you something to motivate you and without that it's very difficult like you're not going to want to you know you've had a hard day at work you're not going to want to go into a fingerboard session if you've got no goals whereas if you know that like man i want to climb i don't know hubble one day then it's like, well, if I want to climb Hubble, I need to make sure that I'm working towards it. And that involves um, motivation, craft. Um, so, but I think the interesting thing is you can pick goals without necessarily seeing them through. 
And I think this is what a lot of people don't realize is that you haven't got to see a goal through. Mm. Like, yes, it's good to, and yes, it'll probably be better for you if it's something that you really do want to do and you are going to see through. But even if, like, if you're just having a bad session and you just, oh man, I don't want to be here, I can't be bothered to train or whatever, then just sit there and think, take 20 minutes and go, man, what is it that I want to get out of climbing? What do I want to climb? And why am I even here right now? And if that is to climb a V4 boulder around the corner that you've been wanting to do for a while, or whether it's to climb DNA or <laughs> I don't know, uh, whatever it could be, just set yourself that goal. Just have something in the mind just to give you that focus. And you can only use it for that session or you could use it for six months Mm -hmm. uh training phases it's just entirely up to you really mm -hmm. but the interesting thing is i think it needs to come from that individual and this is what i try to do with my clients it's the first question i ask them usually is what's your goal why are you coming to me why do you want to get better at climbing mm. um and um it's surprising how few people actually have a proper um proper goal really mm. so i just try and encourage them to focus on something and I don't care how amb how ambitious that might come across. It's, you know, it's not my goal. It's yours. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Do Do you find that long term goals work better or worse than short term goals? Do you is it important to have a mix? Does it matter? Like, you know, can it can it be something totally audacious that's going to take years and years to build up to, or is it better to have something, you know, like no, I can actually see myself doing this six months from now. Any thoughts on that? I think there's a method that I use. I usually pick one main route or boulder or trad route, whatever it might end up being. I pick one particular thing that I want to do and that's going to focus me long-term. And then I also pick several, you know, I don't have a specific amount, probably usually three particular routes that I want to do that are something that I might be able to climb like within a session or, you know, a couple of sessions. Um, and the good thing is with both with doing that is the long-term goals help you improve in the long run and focus um like really it helps you really heavily focus and um kind of be a little bit more structured with things which is important because you need to be consistent you need to have structure but then the short-term goals help with the immediate motivation so mm -hmm. the thing is if you only have a long-term goal you're going to burn out mm. whereas um you know you need to like be ticking stuff off regularly to fulfill that um motivation i guess mm -hmm. um but then if you're only doing stuff like stuff that you can do within a session or two you're never going to improve uh, well you might do but it'll be a lot slower than if you were to kind of have a little bit more um long-term thought mm -hmm. yeah i think that's the way i would put it anyway yeah a combination there it's always yeah. worked for me yeah yeah I, f I feel that too i think i'm really similar in that regard I've had, I've had periods where I just tried to do the like inspirational thing that happens in movies, right? Where you like write the name of the thing on your, on your like whiteboard and you can see it every day when you wake up and make your coffee and you're just like, I'm going to, you know, become Rocky for the next three years and just train for this thing. And, um, yeah. maybe it's a personality thing, but for me, that doesn't have real staying power. Like I need to have mm. shorter things to balance that with and, and have something that feels a little bit more tangible. Um, that's kind of right in front of me. That's like, you know, next season or next month or, or whatever. Um, 
and and yeah, then if I'm like you said, if I'm kind of ticking things and moving through things, I feel like I'm getting somewhere and I I can kind of stay motivated on that bigger longer goal. Yeah. Yeah, that I think the important thing is with that. And it's interesting to say that about like writing it down on on a whiteboard and things like that. I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong with that, but I think something that's quite important is with that main goal, it needs to be something that you really, really do want to do. I think for for that long-term, that real, real long-term goal, it needs to be something that you kind of can convince yourself that you are willing to do anything you possibly can to make that happen. Mm. Um, Because that's the kind of foundation for everything that you do. I think that's the way I view it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if the goal is good enough, it shouldn't need to be constantly reminded to you. It should be just something mm. that you can constantly kind of think about. And um, whether you think about it like once a week or something, it, or it doesn't really matter. But it, I think it's that particular goal that really does give you that helping hand when you're struggling with motivation. Mm. And nobody has perfect motivation. Nobody's permanently psyched. Unless you've maybe Adam Andra, he seems to be permanently psyched. <laughs> he does seem to be but, permanently psyched, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I know for a fact that I'm not personally psyched, uh, permanently psyched. Mm. So um, I don't expect any of my clients to be either, but I think the, the long-term goal does help you um, moderate that a little bit better mm. and help you um, kind of focus a little bit when you're struggling. Yeah. To like help you give you that consistency, which is probably the most important thing to climbing performance. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not wrapping up the interview. I normally save this for the end, but I think it makes sense to ask this now. Um, how can people work with you? If people are listening to this and they're like, man, I resonate with this guy. I want to work with, with Matt. Um, are you taking clients? Is, you know, is it your website? I'll link to, I'll link to all the things, but, um, how can people work with you and what are you currently offering as far as coaching goes? Yeah, so I have a website which is Matt with one T and then Right Coaching. So it's literally mattwrightcoaching.com or it might be dot co.uk. Um, <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> I'll find uh, it. I'll um, link to it in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. Um and then the link is also in my bio on Instagram, which um is just Matt Wright Climbing. Again, okay. Matt's with one T. One T. My mom has made my life very awkward with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone wants to automatically put that second T on there, don't they? Yeah, yeah, Matt with one T. It's uh, I have to say that every single time I yeah. say my name to anyone. <laughs> I'm surprised at the number of people that will write me, you know, it might even be on Instagram where you can see my name. It's it's in my handle. It's, you know, my my main Instagram profile is Stephen Dimmitt and people will still spell it with a PH. And I'm just like, huh, so, yeah, so I did that earlier, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, to- it's totally fine. It happens a lot and I understand it, but... Um, but yeah, I just I always think it's funny. Yeah, it's so it's so easy to do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what happened after Hubble? Let's go back to your climbing, and I'm I'm curious to hear more about your transition into the world of E grades and and hard trad routes. So this is really interesting. So after Hubble, I really struggled with motivation for a bit. I just really didn't really know what to do. I think it's worth mentioning I actually climbed my first V15 um, straight after Hubble. It was a few weeks later, um, <laughs> which I've been trying for a few years. Wow. Which one was it? Yeah. Uh, it's a problem called Serenata, uh, Impossible Roof. It's in um, it's in the Peak... Well, it's not in the Peak District. It's near the Peak District. 
Um, Who put I that believe, up? So, uh, a guy called Mike Adams. Okay. Um, who you may know, but I, yeah, Will Bosey did it the summer before I did it, and it took him ten sessions. So, Damn. must be reasonably hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know, but I don't have a clue about that kind of level. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, I put a lot of work into this, like more more work than what I did with Hubble, but. I would say it was more organic than Hubble. I mm. definitely enjoyed it a lot more. Um, but because I did it immediately after Hubble, I burnt out quite quickly after that. And I really just felt directionless. I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. So um, I kind of like bumbled around for like a year. I climbed 1.8C in this period, which is something that I, it was just a route that I really got quite into. I just enjoyed it. But in terms of performance, I really was trying to not push myself very hard. Um, or like I kind of wanted to push myself hard, but I just really didn't have it in me to do it. Um, and yeah, I, a few things happened, uh, me and my ex broke up, um, which is quite sad. And then, um, shortly after that, I met Anna, um, and Anna's really into trad. She's always been into trad. She absolutely hates sport climbing. <laughs> yeah. She's stubborn git in that sense. Um, <laughs> But yeah, she, I kind of had no choice but to like have a, have a sample of trad really. And I did, I did a little bit up to this point. I climbed up to E8, um, or like a couple of soft E8s I should mention. And I kind of just was quite optimistic in that. I just felt like, yeah, man, I'm like struggling to get anything out of sport and boulder at the moment. So why don't I just focus on this completely different facet of climbing? Uh, and I just happened to find it really, really fun and just enjoyed it a lot and kind of found out I was naturally quite good at it. And, um, that kind of one thing led to another and shortly I climbed for about three months and I repeated lexicon, which was, um, Neil Gresham's famous bloody, really scary route on Pavey Arc. Yeah. Yeah. For people that haven't heard, I did an episode with Neil and we, we talked all about it. It was great. Yeah. Oh man, Neil is, oh, I can't believe he did that in his fifties or like 49. So impressive. So impressive. And he's been in the game for so long. He's, you know, still improving. So incredible. But yeah, having, having spent so much time watching his masterclass videos and having him as this kind of digital mentor, that must've felt pretty good. That must've felt incredible to repeat his hardest route. Oh man, it was like a full turning point for me. It was like a full circle moment. I'd like known as Neil Gresham as this legend, this like, oh man, if I could ever climb as hard as Neil Gresham, that'd be amazing. And then to kind of like, then, you know, use his videos to guide me through climbing and then to eventually meet him and tell him that I wanted to try his route. He, he must've thought, man, you've done like no trad climbing. What do you mean you want to try lexicon? And I literally had done barely any track climbing at this point when I when I spoke to him about it. And yeah, I then kind of got up there, started trying the route, really fell in love with it. It's absolutely incredible. Mm. And it climbs really, really well. It's a beautiful line as well. And it just felt just completely organic from the start. I, felt, I never, ever felt like I was pressured or suffering in the slightest. I love the walking every single time, love setting up my anchor, love working the line. And then to eventually be like, oh, Neil, I've led lexicon. It was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody expected it. Um, it took like six sessions in the end. Wow. Not very yeah. long. Yeah. 
which I did not expect that. I was expecting to spend like half a year on it. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, you said that on the phone too, that no one expected it. I mean, did it just feel like you came out of nowhere and did this super hard trad route? Yeah, it's kind of weird really because I think everybody's been doubting the grade since I've done it. But um, (laughs) (laughs) just because, I mean, I don't blame them. It was pretty unlikely, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, sport climber Matt Wright has just gone and repeated one of the hardest trad lines in Britain. And like, oh yeah, it's like, how can it possibly be that grade? Mm. But um, yeah, (laughs) it was kind of interesting how people reacted to it because I think like rather than me being celebrated for it, the climbing community in Britain then in fact turned a blind eye to it, I believe, and actually kind of, I'd say it was probably... Yeah, I was very surprised at how the public reacted to it. It was like, I think it kind of, it, I don't know, it's very strange, I think, just how, like, I don't really know how to explain it, but yeah, the, I think, uh, yeah, people were definitely doubting the grade. I, I think people mm. didn't want to necessarily believe that it was the grade that it was with me having done it after so little climbing and uh, sorry, track climbing. Mm. I'm really waffling now. I know I don't really know. To... <laughs> well, no, I can, I can, I kind of see what you're saying. I mean, like you would expect, you would expect people to be like, "Oh my god, like who's this guy? This guy we've never heard of is, you know, repeated this amazing, famous, incredible route. Like this is amazing. You know, that's one option. And then it sounds like what they, what people didn't instead was, wait, who's this? This guy did it. Oh, if this guy did it, it must not actually be this crazy thing that we thought it was just, yeah, kind of using your, um, your, your lack of being in the spotlight as, as a way to kind of take away from the experience or from the like kind of prestige. And, um, yeah, I'm having trouble (laughs) describing it too, but I can feel what you're saying. Yeah. I can feel what you're saying. There's like a negative response to it instead of a positive and, I think it's so interesting and, and so annoying that we, um, as climb as the climbing community, we tend to see things as evidence when there might be nothing there. You know, it's like, oh, this person we've never heard of repeated this really hard boulder. It must be easier than we thought. Or like the classic one that's so annoying is like, oh, a woman finally repeated this hard boulder. Oh, let's downgrade it oh, immediately. Man. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just like, oh my yeah. god, are we really still doing that? But like you said, like in in your case. It sounds like you jumped a couple E grades, didn't have a big uh, trad climbing resume. So maybe it makes sense to some degree. But then at the same time, it's like, well, you've already climbed Hubble and you've climbed V15. And really this thing is a poorly protected sport route. You know, it's it's like, I shouldn't call it a sport route, but it's a face climb. It's not like a really hard crack. That's a totally yeah, different... Yeah, it's physical. Right. It, it looks like... It looks like if it had bolts, it would be, you know, a 14A or 14B at Smith Rock or something like that. Like the style looks like something that I'm sure you had a lot of experience with. It wasn't such a far cry from the, the type of climbing that you'd already done at a really high level. It's just... Yeah, it just suited me really well. And I, mm. I seem to be very desensitized to exposure, which I think the thing with that route is it's on a mountain crag and it's really, really exposed. Like you have, when you're on the crux of that route, you've got like, I mean, what, what, like five meters of run out. And then you've also got like 35 to 40 meters of pure air underneath you. Mm. Um, and it like behind that is just an open landscape. It's, um, you know, it's literally on the side of a mountain. Uh, 
So I think if you can switch off from that exposure, it's a different experience. And I think for people that are not used to that, it, it would be very, very intimidating. Mm. How is it that you were able to do that without, you know, the amount of of background or experience that Neil Gresham or Dave McLeod might have? I mean, it might not seem like it, but I've done a lot of soloing. Um, mm. When I first started climbing, I was soloing a lot in those quarries. And I've actually got a really funny story about uh, a 6C that I soloed when I was younger. And I, essentially, I couldn't top out on it because it was too chossy. Uh, so what I did is I put a rope dangling down the down the top. And what I was going to do is climb up. Uh, when I got to the top, clip in and just abseil down. Um, but what I kind of didn't think about in my stupid youth is that you need two hands to put a grigri on. <laughs> <laughs> so I got up there and uh, had to um, desperately try and put a grigri on one-handed whilst being in a position where, had I fallen, I would have been absolutely... Um, bread and butter. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> toast. <laughs> yeah, so like you know, it's kind of anyway. I've, I've done a fair bit of soloing, and I think that helps with these things. Mm. And I also know how to control myself when I'm um, in a very scary situation, mm. which does help. Um, yeah, but I think it, it's interesting that we we're talking about the climbing community because I think this is something that a little bit more light needs putting on. And I think for people that decide to comment on things and decide to put their opinion out there, I think they should, they don't necessarily realize that people, that the people these they're writing these comments about can see them mm -hmm. and it does affect them. And like for me personally, it definitely affects me when I see people say negative stuff about the things that I've done. And, you know, I've had barely any trouble compared to my partner, Anna, mm. who, um, you know, she had people like everything she was doing, like saying, oh, I should be downgraded and um, it's not great that it's done. You shouldn't use pads, shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. And like, man, honestly, that whole, like, man, I'm just like, how on earth can people be like that about other people and i think just you know not to have a go but i definitely think people should really think about what they're putting online and how that might affect people yeah because it really does affect people even yeah. though they might not necessarily realize it yeah it's... and you have to be incredibly strong-minded to not let it affect you mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i don't want to risk I'm being repetitive here because um, I did just talk about this in a recent episode with, uh, I think it was with Lily Crawl. We talked about this, but I completely agree with you. And I've, I think there's like a fascinating element of human psychology where with the way that we can communicate digitally, we're just a step removed from actually talking to the person or actually seeing their face. People oh, just yeah. say stuff that they would never say to your face, right? And I think exactly. something something interesting happens like when they see that you are in the upcoming Brit Rock film or they see that Anna's been in some of these bigger movies and there's like this perception that this person is a famous person that's like in a different category, you know? Like they're above it all. They're above like being on Instagram, seeing all the comments or maybe they, yeah. maybe people assume that like you're not even actually the one behind your Instagram or things like that. But it's like, no, I mean, climbing is still small. Like you live in a van. I live in a van, you know, like I'm, I do almost everything behind the podcast. I get a little bit of help here and there with some things, but the same things happened for me. And I've noticed a real shift in the last year or two where I think now people, I think 
early on, people perceived me as like an underdog and were really excited that I was doing something new. And I felt like I got nothing but positive feedback and it was really encouraging. And I still get a ton of, of positive feedback and I'm super grateful for it because it really does keep the fire lit for me. But I get way more trolling now. And I think it's this psychological sense that like people perceive the podcast as being a success and they probably think I have a whole team of people and they probably think that, you know, I'm not actually the one commenting or, or like responding to DMs or whatever it is. And it's just like dehumanizing, right? Like exactly, our, our digital yeah. communication, leaving comments on a YouTube video or on an Instagram, it, it's, we're able to dehumanize the other person and say stuff and throw things out there that we would never say. And it's, it is fascinating and it's troubling and it's, it's having real impacts on the real people behind the stuff. And it's like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah damn. People it's kind of nasty. To, yeah. I think people really need to just remember that it takes a ton of hard work to end up in the position that I'm in or the position that you're in, or even the position that they're in. Like, and we're all, every single person that's involved with these things is just a human. And, you know, like, I would love to pretend that nothing affects me. And I'd love to be able to say, oh yeah, like, you know, people giving me shit online doesn't affect me, but it totally does. And it really mm -hmm. does get to you. And I think it gets to anybody, but that some people admit it and some people don't. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I would be, I would love to be so enlightened that it was just like water off the duck's back, you know, like doesn't even phase me. And, and I, I'm okay at it, but it is fascinating. Like you read, you read like, you know, I, I can get like a super heartfelt, beautiful comment from someone and then like read a troll's comment, you know, an hour later. And those two are not the same, you know, like I should, yeah. I should take the one thing to heart and really like, let it fill me up and be able to hold on to that feeling. But then our psychology, our brains are just so much more sensitive to the negative stuff and it feels way more powerful. And whether or not you actually take it personally or not, your brain's just like, it's, it gets in there, you know? And, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that we evolve as people, we, you know, we don't, we don't evolve and become better out of the positive stuff that happens in our lives. It's the negative stuff that drives you and encourages you to do really well. Mm. But for a lot of people anyway, I'm, I mean, of course, like positive opportunities and stuff are great, but mm. like really, um, the fire inside usually comes from a negative place. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's just something that you know, it's kind of interesting remembering that like negative comments do tend to have a bigger impact than positive comments but yet people don't seem to want to put positive comments on things so often but mm -hmm. man if someone's got something negative to say it's like whoa that's straight on there yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean i can i can kind of be like on the flip side of it i think I can kind of understand where those sorts of comments come from. You know, I think, I think a lot of people feel frustrated and I think a lot of people feel stuck in their own lives and they, you yeah, know, it's totally. easy to imagine that you have like made it and your life's amazing or that I've made it and everything in my life is amazing. And so I think a lot of those comments are born out of that frustration and that sense of discontent, you know, like why haven't I been able to figure out my thing and I'm going to like pour out some of this frustration and anger towards, you know, this person who doesn't feel like a human to me, who's probably going to be fine no matter what I say, um, because I don't have another outlet for that sort of negativity. I think that's where it comes from. And I can like, 
yeah. be compassionate towards that. But also, I it's just hard to relate to. It's like, I can't imagine saying something mean to like anybody, you know, <laughs> unless they're like yeah. really causing someone harm or something. I just, I'm like, man, I've never left a, co- a negative comment or like a snarky negative review or anything like ever, you know, I, it's just, it's just kind of fascinating. I guess people yeah. are just wired differently, but, um, but yeah, I wanted to ask yeah. you this. So I, I want to, I want to get into the Brit rock film that's coming out hard grit. Um, it's coming out in early November. I think it's going to be out right after this publishes. I'll talk about it in the intro and outro and let people know where they can find it, of course. Um, but I was just, I checked out the website yesterday and I was reading the description of the film and the first line caught my eye and it's related to what we're talking about. And I think this is from the filmmaker, you know, describing the film, but, um, the first line says, describing you, Matt, it says controversial and never far from the news. And then it goes on to say, you know, Matt Wright does blah, 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 and tries these really hard roots and stuff and puts up some awesome first descents. Um, That stood out to me because I didn't know what they were talking about. Is that lexicon and the grades? What are you comfortable sharing more context around what that might've meant? I I'm just like, what? I don't know. I'm not aware of any controversy around you or what people had problems with or whatever, but I imagine it's probably related to what we're talking about. I think I wouldn't be controversial had I been born in the eighties. I think, I think that this is kind of a weird way of putting it, but the reason why I believe people view me as a bit controversial is I'm very, I find it very difficult to lie to people or to come up with any kind of, um, you know, bullshit answers. Like I'm very much like if I have an opinion on someone or something, I'm very quick to kind of, um, make that quite clear to them. And not even like in a, in a bad way, like most of the time it's like 99% of the times I have a very positive opinion on people. Um, but the times when I've had issues with people, it's really bitten me really quite badly. Um, an example of like what I'm talking about is I had Oh man, there was this group of people that really tried to ruin Anna's career a few years ago and they damaged a car and they literally took a shit under a route she was trying and damaged a rope and wow. like followed her around for ages, like trying to like repeat the stuff that she was doing and trying to downgrade it, stuff like that. It was just really weird and making like fake accounts to try and like make her look bad. And it did quite a lot of damage to, to her and it really kind of riled me up and these people tried doing it to me when we first got together and i just like totally did the uh they're like i'm gonna protect my partner thing and sent this guy like a really arsy message um which man i regret sending that message so bad because i gave him the material to completely screw things over for me and Mm. what he did is he took a screenshot of that and sent it around to hundreds of people and like people's opinion of me changed very fast. Like I went from having a very good, clean reputation to kind of being, um, I think kind of known as a bit of an arsehole for a bit. Mm. Like I'm trying to, trying to, I know I shouldn't swear a lot, but I kind of really quite a, a bit of a negative reputation for a while. It took me quite a while to recover that. And loads of people who I thought my friends and stuff, um, just, kind of unfollowed me and started being really weird with me when I seen him at the crag, stuff like that. And, um, like <laughs> when all I did was literally try to defend myself it, uh, and that was all it was, but 
yeah, I think like had social media not been a thing, then that wouldn't have happened. But mm. um, sadly, that's the damage that social media can do these days. And um, I just think people should take what they see with a pinch of salt because you'd be surprised just how far people will go out the lens to try and ruin careers for people like me and Anna mm. that have worked incredibly hard to get into this position in the first place. And it would be, it's amazing just how quickly it can all be turned to ash as well. Yeah. What, yeah. what is that? Do you think, is that jealousy? Is it, um, it's totally jealousy. Yeah. Totally jealousy. I, I, I mean, the, the reason I, I said this, to the guy that I sent the message to, I called him out for being jealous and, um, basically said that like, you know, it, it it's just like sad really. And, um, uh, oh God, I should, I, I don't even, I'm getting, you're getting fired terrible. up. <laughs> yeah. This message is terrible, but, um, mm. yeah, like I kind of, I, I, I'm really not proud of sending it at all, but, um, yeah, like I, I kind of, there was a lot of truth with that message and, um, yeah, sadly people don't seem to value truth and honesty and genuine people these days quite as much as what they used to, I believe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they do, but they see them as weak and it's very easy to kind of prod it. Yeah. People like me. Yeah. 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 But I've learned from that and I'm definitely not going to make that same mistake twice. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's hard to do, but I think this digital technological age that we live in kind of, kind of forces you to like be the person that takes the high road, you know, because of exactly what you're talking about. Like if you lose your temper and, you know, get a shitty comment and reply with another shitty comment, then that's just ammunition. You know, it's, it's, it's proof in that person's mind that you are the asshole that they were sure that you were, which is why they sent that message yeah. in the first place, you know? And I've been really surprised at how quickly people will walk back what they said if you're friendly with them, you know, like I had a fascinating experience the other day um, where someone sent me a, a message and basically said like, you know, like I used to love the show, but you're blowing it, you know, like all the recent interviews suck, that sort of thing, you know, which whatever, if that's your opinion, that's fine. But I sat with it for a while. I was like, I don't really know. Like, I probably won't answer this or, and then finally I just wrote, um, I disagree with a smiley face. That was it, you know? <laughs> and then they immediately walked back like, ah, oh, like, yeah, you're right. If I was into this type of climbing, I probably would have really enjoyed all those episodes and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's fascinating. Okay. You know, it's just, now we can be homies. We can be friends, you know, or we can just chat or yeah. whatever. But I think, I think that, um, I think people are wanting you to react. And then if you do, it, it kind of validates their, um, their actions, you know, but if you, if you're nice in response or even just neutral, um, it just takes all the, the fuel out of the fire and then they're left feeling like the asshole. And then they're like, Oh man, okay. I like, yeah. I, I was kind of fired up or whatever, but Anyway, yeah, I, I, mean, I don't, I'm not explaining that to you. I know you've, you've already learned that lesson, but it's just, I just, that just yeah. happened to me and I've been kind of reflecting on it. And it's, it's just, an, again, kind of a fascinating human psychology thing. Yeah. I think like had these people 
only just sent messages and only just done a bit mm. of like slagging off or whatever, yeah, like yeah. I would have been totally fine about it and I would have been rational, but and like, it's towards your partner, which physical is physical things. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's like, I would have a really hard time with that. I would definitely want to step into that like protective you know, like I have a duty here. I have like a responsibility. Like I need to defend my partner or else. Yeah. I don't know. There, there's a lot attached to that that would make it a lot um, more intense yeah. and, and more difficult. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And I mean, I would sacrifice my career over Anna's any day of the week. Mm. I mean, you know, it, it's not even like a, a bad thing or whatnot, but like if these people were doing that much damage, then absolutely. I would uh, do everything I can to protect her mm. and, that's all I was doing in that situation. I was just, um, I wanted to show them that I wasn't going to just bow down to their bullshit and just show them that like, you know, I'm a human and if you're going to try it on with me, then I'm going to fire back. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of the thought process that I had at the time. But yeah, like realistically, that has not served me any favors at all. And um, I actually got dropped from my uh, sponsors at the time because of like a chain reaction of this and mm. um what's it called uh my sponsors literally didn't want to hear my side of the story at all they didn't they were calling me a liar and mm. uh all this and i was like man like <laughs> i'm anything but a liar i actually am shooting myself in the foot by trying to tell you the truth here but you don't want to listen and that's the kind of damage it can do it can reflect poorly on you in the process and um yeah, that's just something that I think is to learn from that situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other thing. I can I can really see in the last few years that brands don't want to touch anything controversial. They don't want to, you know, if like if the public eye is viewing things a certain way, the brand just goes along with that and just does damage control. You know, more, more brands than not, not all brands, but I've definitely seen that where, you know, I, I've... There, there's like another side of the story, but the brand isn't interested. You know, the the person in the middle of the situation like never gets an opportunity to to share or talk about it and things like that. And I can understand that. I see where it comes from, but yeah, it's just it's interesting. I think if you are saying that though, like the so a chain reaction of this event actually um, something happened at a Berghouse party. So I'm sponsored by Berghouse and this is oh, yeah. my main sponsor. Nice sweatshirt. Um, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I love this brand. Um, <laughs> but they are brilliant and they have done nothing but support me and Anna through everything. And um, they 100% believe in us and they trust us. And I really think that if sponsorship and athletes are to move forward in the future, they, there needs to be a little bit more cooperation from both ends. And yeah, that's, that's something that I've really learned from this whole situation is like some brands you can trust and some you can't. Mm. Um, I certainly won't trust wild country again after mm. what happened. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really cool. We talked about that on the phone too. It's cool to hear about your connection with Berghouse and the support that you get from them. It just sounds, I, I don't know much about the brand, honestly, but they helped us get together to do this interview and um, they just seem rat. They just seem like they pick really cool athletes who are out there doing cool things and um, and make them part of the family. And um, yeah, family is really at the core of Berghouse. They're an absolutely fantastic brand, and I am unbelievably lucky to be working with them. And I really mean that from like you know pure honesty. It's such a good brand, mm. and I 
really looking forward to what we end up producing in the future because we've got a lot of plans and I think um, we've got some good stuff coming our way. That's cool. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by AG1. I drink AG1 first thing in the morning, usually while I make my coffee, and I love starting the day feeling like I'm doing something good for my body. I always feel refreshed and ready to go after drinking my AG1. I really enjoy it. All great athletes have one thing in common. They take care of their bodies. And a huge part of that starts with optimizing whole body health. A lot of them also drink AG1, and it's why I'm a huge fan. With every daily serving, I'm setting myself up for success with 75 high-quality ingredients that give me key daily nutrients and support energy, focus, strength, and clarity throughout the day. It's a small habit that delivers huge benefits and helps me take great care of my health every day. So check it out. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash nugget. That's drinkag1.com slash nugget. Check it out. In addition to the support from our amazing sponsors, this episode is brought to you by many of you who listen to the show. One of the primary means I get support for this podcast is direct support from listeners on Patreon. For just $5 per month, you can get instant access to more than 150 hours of exclusive content and more than 80 patron-only episodes with new episodes coming every month. You can listen to the patron version of the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or watch uncut videos of all of my episodes. And if that's not enough, you'll get your questions featured on the show and you'll get every episode ad-free. So you will never have to skip through ads again. You can learn more at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. It only takes a few minutes to sign up. You can cancel at any time, no questions asked. And right now you can get a seven day free trial so you can check it out, see what all the fuss is about literally for free. That's patreon.com slash the nugget climbing or scroll down and click on the link right there in your podcast app. I appreciate you guys for listening and thank you so much for your support. And now back to the show. Thank you for sharing all of that about, about that first line from the description of the, the film. Yeah, just I was curious and it's great to hear your thoughts. And I'm sure that um I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who just this always happens, right? Like for me, I'm always the person that like has a vague awareness that some controversy went down with somebody, but I don't really know any of the details, you know. I'm like, oh yeah, everyone's mad at that person right now. I don't really know why. I don't know what happened. I'm sure there's people listening that um are familiar with your name and, and might have kind of seen it in their periphery and I'm sure it'll be really helpful for them to just hear your thoughts and, and your side of the story a little bit. And, um, yeah, just appreciate you being really transparent about it. Cause this is a part of the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just need to all be a little bit more honest and a little bit more real, I think. And, you know, just start accepting that we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have dreams and ambitions and that's just life. You know, that we're all, the, we're all pretty similar at the core and, we shouldn't forget that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so just to mention, uh, it's not hard grit, it's hard git. Uh, and oh, hard git. What, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. And 
Yeah, no, it's basically a kind of we're kind of playing on the um, the kind of controversial a, a little bit because it's I don't know I think it's refreshing for things to kind of yeah be a little bit more about genuine honesty and genuine human stories as opposed to it being kind of like a you know like a oh Matt's uh, all about success and you know doing all these hard routes and that's Matt you know but there's actually a lot more to Matt and this is what you realize through this um this film that documents a year of my climbing um yeah so the the reason why we ended up going with hard git in the end um I'm just trying to remember why we ended up going with that now um, <laughs> yeah it was totally tongue and cheek uh do you, do you guys use the uh, the term tongue and cheek yeah in america yeah yeah mm-hmm. cool um well yeah basically we just uh wanted to kind of make it all a bit jokey and a bit kind of yeah like this isn't a serious climbing film kind yeah of thing. well and yeah but people, it is serious yeah totally and if it, it's kind of brilliant because if people have made up their mind about you and think you're an asshole because of something they saw online or something they heard, you know, third hand through the grapevine or whatever, then this title is kind of like owning it. And you, you can tell that like, you're going to get a little bit more of the story if you watch it. I think that's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because after all this stuff happened, all the negative stuff, I actually kind of like retracted a lot from the climbing community and I just didn't want anything to do with the climbing world anymore. I just decided like, man, everyone sucks. You know, mm. I kind of went into this like depressive negative headspace for a while. And, um, after all that negativity, I decided that man, like, why am I trying to pretend that I'm somebody I'm not? Mm. I'm a good people person. I like people. I like talking to people and I like hearing about people's stories and what they're psyched on. And, and just about climbing in general and why should i change the person i am to try and suit some stereotype that's going around about me that isn't true when i could just actually show the world that Mm. like man that you know you can all think that if you want but the reality is i'm not that person Mm. Uh, you know and i'm going to show you that (laughs) yeah yeah that's kind of the, the the way that i went it's very, very black and white view, I guess. Yeah, but. no, that's really smart and, and that's mature and that's awesome. I, I think that's great. Tell me more about the film. Um, where did the, so the film followed a year of your life. Um, what was the initial idea and how did it evolve and what was, what ended up being captured in the film? So it totally went naturally. I contacted Al because I was trying Rhapsody and um, Rhapsody was a route that I wanted to do for quite a while. It probably quite similar to Hubble really. It was just, a route I wanted to do even before I started track climbing and started trying it, put a lot of time into it. But, um, what started to happen is the conditions started getting really poor at Dunbar and I was getting really unlucky with the winds and essentially it just never ended up happening. But Al captured loads of really cool footage of me falling off it and getting completely spanked. And then, uh, we just kind of decided, um, that I wanted to throw the towel in with Rhapsody and potentially come back another time, but I'm not particularly bothered about wrapping things up for this film. So we decided on a new narrative, and that was to, instead of forcing myself to climb a route that I didn't want to climb anymore, I would instead focus on new routes and focus on um, 
more organic fun climbing uh which is exactly what we did and uh, i ended up doing three new routes um a really cool route called bohemian which was a joke on rhapsody because you know bohemian rhapsody <laughs> um and then uh what's it called um that was like a really good fun line but it wasn't particularly hard and then i ended up finding another project in Glen Nevis, which is uh, in the centre of the Scotch Highlands, um, which ended up becoming Black Thistle. But that was extremely hard for me at the start. And it actually took me a good few sessions to figure the moves out. And then uh, I had maybe 10 sessions in total before doing it. Um, I don't believe that it's as physically hard as Rhapsody, but it's definitely more dangerous. Mm. Um, and that is probably the centre point of the film. And then there's another first ascent that I did, which was a route called Magical Thinking at uh, Pavey Arc. And um, that route is actually two routes to the right of Lexicon. So that was really, really cool, actually, going and putting, on, putting a new route up on this really cool cliff that mm. I really love. Um, and I really hope it becomes popular and more people come and visit the UK to come and have a go at it at some point. That's awesome. Yeah. Are those brand new, like you're cleaning the moss off the holds? Had those been tried before? So Black Thistle was completely new, and I believe Bohemian was as well. Um, but uh, Magical Thinking was a project of Charlie Woodburn, mm. who's a absolute incredible dark horse. He's done 79s, and most of them he did uh, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and yeah, just did some really, really, really cool climbing and a lot of bold climbing as well, a lot of really scary climbing. Um, so when I heard about him trying this route, I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to go and try that once he's, once he's done it. But then I think he kind of just started, lost motivation for the line and he had like a year break from it. And I had a couple of casual chats with him, just kind of wanted to know if he was absolutely wrapped up with it or not. And, um, he said he was wrapped up with it and I decided to give him a few more months just in case he kind of changed his mind or anything. Um, I really wanted to give him the chance to seal the deal on it, but I think he just really properly decided that he didn't want to do it. Mm. Um, and once I was convinced that he absolutely wasn't going to go back for it, I went there instantly and um, <laughs> spent like two weeks, uh, like four sessions working it and got really into it. And yeah, it kind of really went smoothly. And the weather was terrible when I was trying it as well. Like it ran in like five days you know, for, for every five days, it was probably raining like four of those days. Um, so I was just going like between the showers and um, the day that I did it was actually the first day that it was dry. And um, yeah, it was just really, really nice um, sealing, sealing the deal on this really cool project that had mm. been known about for a long time. Is it similar to Lexicon in the sense that um, it has that massive headwall after the, the break? So you have like a super long run out to the top above your gear or is it a totally different situation it's kind of similar but it's also quite different and the, so it's kind of similar in terms of um like the way the route works you see you kind of like climb halfway up the cliff and it's fairly easy and then you get a horizontal break where you get the last of the good gear and then it's um a head wall after that but the difference is with this line is you climb like an e3 corner to get up there um which is probably like uh french 6b 6b plus so it's fairly easy i don't know what that is in american grades um neither do i honestly <laughs> yeah um somewhere it's like the, fairly somewhere in the 510 511 range i think 
Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah, and um, but then it kind of changes massively uh, to this headwall directly above this corner system, and the headwalls around eight A plus, which is five thirteen. Thirteen C. Yep. Thirteen C. Um, yeah, but if you fall off any of the climbing on this headwall, you are absolutely one hundred percent guaranteed to hit a slab underneath you, um, and it's like really really dangerous so it's one of those routes where you need to climb it with complete confidence and you have to really want it and i really <laughs> like those kind of routes <laughs> yeah a Man, really good fun that's wild so you're not you're not quite soloing a 13c but kind of more more or less it, yeah like you would like, definitely get you're injured not gonna, you, you're probably not going to die if you fall off but you are absolutely gonna um you i'm absolutely certain you'll end up being seriously injured mm. and probably hospitalized i would imagine damn yeah um mm. but yeah this the route suited me really really well so it was quite easy for me to justify the risk what do you um, mean by that is that like the style of the climbing the types of the holds yes yeah, so the holds on it are all quite positive but they're you they're quite small and far apart but because of that i'm really good at being able to bone down on like really small positive holds um, and I genuinely feel quite in control on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so despite the climbing being physically very hard, I had mostly 100% success rate on it. Um, so like once I knew that I could top rope it every single go without fail, it was easy for me to then just go, I mean, yeah, like I'll just do it. And <laughs> as long as I don't fall off, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And the nice thing about climbing routes with no gear is that once you do it on top rope, you don't have to... You're like, it's not going to be harder because I have to stop and clip or anything. I just cl- do the exact same thing. <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just there's no um, rope above me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except it's a bit more scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's definitely how it felt. Yeah. Did you feel scared doing it? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I, you're like so in the I zone. actually felt really free. Mm. Um, yeah. I felt like completely um, like kind of like a superhero, I guess. Like, mm. oh man. Yeah, like total flow, total in the zone. And like, I kind of like subconsciously knew I was doing it as well, which felt nice. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah. Like that complete confidence, I think, is something that I really had on that route. Mm-hmm. Whereas Black Thistle wasn't quite so um, easy to manage in that sense. Okay. Yeah. How, how does that one compare? Is it um, more physically difficult, less risky, similar? Um physically much harder um not quite as dangerous okay. so and you gave both uh, of them e10 is that right yeah so i'd say they're both probably the same grade uh e10 7a and so what that basically means is that the overall challenge of the route is kind of represented quite well by e10 and then 7a is just the hardest uh individual move mm. um and you kind of have to use a bit of like guesstimating to understand how difficult it is in relation to where you're most likely to fall off and the so with magical thinking there was a the 7a move was quite low down on it but it does, does that 7a that. sorry to interrupt but does that 7a have any relation to the font grade system or the the french sport completely system? unrelated completely um, unrelated that's what i thought yeah it's much it's much yeah. harder right it's like yeah so like english 7a like typically you don't get roots easier than like um i don't know like i'd, I'd say like a, a one move 7a 
which is what seven a should describe is probably at least a one move seven a plus seven b i would imagine boulder um, or or, like, or root yeah like v i don't know like v7 v7 or v8 imagine. okay minimum and that could be up to like v9 okay um and then like i mean this is everybody has different opinions on this which is why i'm very skeptical yeah um to be quite honest, I think the American grading system is so much better for mm. grading routes. The, the English system's absolutely diabolical and nobody has a clue how to use it. Um, yeah, it's like way too complicated and it doesn't need to be. Like, I don't know why we don't just give them like a French grade or an American grade and then is it R. safe? Mm -hmm. Is it run out? Is it death? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, can you fall off it? Can you not? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like the American system's so much better in that sense, I think. Because like these routes could really easily be described as like 13CX for magical thinking, and then Black Thistle could. I mean, I, I don't even know. I'd probably say that's 514R. I mm. would imagine okay. if I had to guess an American grade. Yeah. But the thing is, for Black Thistle, if you do fall off um, the crooks move on it, you are probably going to be injured. Okay. But again, yeah. So this is where it gets a little bit kind of. Yeah kind of hard to distinguish <laughs> trad grades yeah man i mean it's it's what you said a minute ago is really interesting because everyone you know there's like this age-old question that everyone always um struggles to answer which is why you know like why not just put a few bolts in this thing and, and have like a much more safe enjoyable hard climbing experience but the way that you described how you felt climbing it like you weren't scared you felt free you felt like a superhero i think that's the why you know it's yeah you have to th there's something different that happens like i've i don't do hard scary trad routes but i've experienced this with high ball boulders right it's like it's a similar thing where it's really hard to articulate but it's such a different experience when you're it's very different yeah when, when you're high up and it's not something that i want to have all the time but it definitely has been like a really beautiful important part of my lived human experience you know like it's it's really cool to just ex to see what it's like to be in an objectively risky exposed dangerous position while also having like pure confidence and and just executing yeah. like that's that's a pretty unique and, and pretty incredible combination you know maybe that's tapping into the parts of us that used to like hunt dangerous animals or something like that i don't know but it definitely feels very human yeah it's very animalistic i think trad is and i like that um mm. i could definitely see why it's not for all but i think most humans quite like feeling like an animal and it's good mm. um i also think another big reason why we don't tend to bolt everything is because we don't have as much rock as what you have in america and we have a lot of really good rock but most of it is too featured to be hard um and like malum cove for example when you're going to really struggle to find anything harder than um rain man at malum and rain man's a link up as well so like our hardest route in britain is literally a link up and the other hard routes have mostly eliminates and follow like non-existent lines whereas the good thing about trad is that you can get really good lines you can get really hard moves but then you also add that element of danger and that again can like exponentially increase the challenge and challenge is why we climb mm. like you know why else would you want to do these things it's 
but about challenging yourself surely and um yeah like the uk has some really bloody good trad and we have free healthcare system which helps <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe that's why it hasn't you know taken off yeah in america. i do feel for the americans <laughs> yeah americans really are i do really feel for you guys because that must suck <laughs> Yeah, it's shocking how confusing it is. You know, I'm self-employed now and um, getting healthcare was was it was just like remarkable how convoluted and, and you know, confusing it was. It's like, man, how does like yeah. a single mom who doesn't have any free time figure out how to get healthcare if, if she doesn't have it through her employer or whatever? Because I've I'm a single guy and I've got a lot of time on my hands to research this and I'm still really struggling here. So. Yeah, it's crazy. I think it's that way yeah. on purpose, but I mean, anyway. What are you guys paying taxes for? Like, Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, man, yeah. we, we could really go off on that. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's not <laughs> start talking about governments and Trump else. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. So going back to Black Thistle, um, I have a note here in front of me. You gave it E10, and you said it's definitely the most challenging trad route you've done. So tell me about that. I always think that's interesting when someone says... It's the hardest thing I've done or the most challenging thing I've done, but they don't give it the highest grade that they've done. Um, does that reflect on lexicon? How do you think about that? I think I think there's an interesting discrepancy or um, what am I trying to say? There, there's um, a clarification between challenge and difficulty, and I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, um, there's definitely a difference between challenge and difficulty. Like, I think difficulty is very linear. It's something that can be calculated. And it's something that, you know, with consensus can be agreed upon, whereas challenge is very individual. And I do think that Black Thistle suited me incredibly well. Um, and I don't know if it is harder than lexicon or whether it's not. The differences between the two, I think, is that Lexicon's a much, much bigger route. It's got a really big walk-in, and it's much more intimidating. But I think physically, I found it easier. Mm. And but it's also much more mentally challenging. Like the run out on it is freaking huge. Whereas with Black Thistle, despite it being quite dangerous, it's quite short still. So you can kind of get through the meat of the hard climbing very quickly. Mm. Whereas with lexicon you have to climb like um you know like a huge you know five thirteen bit of climbing just to arrive at the crux when you're like four meters above the gear and then you have to decide on whether you're wanting to justify a you know a v8 boulder in a position where you could potentially die mm. and uh you know that takes a lot of mental tenacity to be able to pull something like that off which i think adds to the challenge uh, and adds to the difficulty of a route Whereas the thing with Black Thistle is, despite it being quite a lot harder and the injury risk being quite high, it because it's so short, you could smash it out really quickly. Mm. And I think as a result, it kind of feels a little bit less, a um, little bit less uh, intense, I think is the way to put it. Okay. But I mean, this is all like speculation, isn't it? We don't, we don't really know. Um, and, Funnily enough, Dave McLeod's gone and tried Black Thistle since I've put it up, and he hasn't done it yet. So it must be at least E8. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and um, I don't know, like Lexicon took him a fair amount of time. So I'll be interested to see how long Black Thistle takes him and how he compares the two routes, but they're definitely yeah. quite different. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Do you feel a kinship with Dave McLeod? Because I was, you know, looking at your resume and thinking about it, like you've climbed 14C, you've climbed V15, and now you've climbed E11. I think he's the only other person that has done those those three things. Maybe, maybe I'm missing some people, but... James Pearson as well. Oh, yeah. right. Of course. Person, I believe, yeah. Great. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. I'm actually hoping to have yeah, James I mean, on the show soon. Yeah. I mean, I definitely find Dave McLeod a little bit more relatable than uh, James Pearson. I feel like, I mean, James Pearson is, without a doubt, as, as far as I'm concerned, he's the best track climber in the world. He's incredibly good. And the race in which he does things and how fast he does them is to me mind-blowing whereas i find dave mcleod just a little bit more relatable in that sense in that um he works hard for stuff and he's driven and he's calculated which i i find definitely is a little bit more like me mm. as opposed to james where i mean james just seems like a robot as far as i'm concerned i don't understand how you can be that good at trad and <laughs> get away with it so much <laughs> that's yeah. cool okay do you um yeah do you know Dave personally have you climbed with him I've spoken to him a few times the, the interesting thing with Dave is he seems to keep his cards close to his chest he, he doesn't let people in very easily mm. which I really respect and um I'm definitely becoming a little bit more like that as I'm getting a little bit older so like I don't feel like I have a particularly strong relationship or anything with Dave McLeod but I do feel like I um have quite a lot in common with him mm -hmm. and i'm also extremely interested in scottish climbing which uh dave is absolutely the pioneer of scottish climbing and he has been for as long as time has existed it seems <laughs> 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 yeah he's been pushing that that scene forward for for decades um yeah which, like the ultimate respect for dave yeah yeah, yeah absolutely although he's legend yeah right, i kind of got a bit um I was interested to listen to his four-hour video on keto, yeah. keto diet. I did actually listen to it, but okay, yeah. Uh, I think there's a bit of, oh man, like God, it's, it takes a very long time to for <laughs> these things. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I. I. Yeah. I. Uh, I know. I mean, I'm. I'm sure. Um, yeah, just shows how much of a sad nerd I am that I've listened to Dave's <laughs> video on Gachito. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've interviewed him about it. I haven't actually. Um, I haven't actually done that yet, though. Yeah. I'm, I've been aware of that video for quite some time, and um, I haven't dove into I it. I definitely but. recommend trying it. Uh, if you haven't tried keto yet, it's. Um, I tried it for a week, and I had. Uh, very interesting results, but the, the for just a week. thing with me, yeah. So I didn't. I don't think I actually got into ketosis during this period. So, but I, I did feel that I had energy that kind of was lasting forever. Mm. Um, but the thing is, with my body shape is that I don't put on fat, so I don't need to worry too much about what I eat. Mm. I eat very healthily, but I don't necessarily focus too much on, um, you know, certain diets or anything. Yeah, I don't need to. Um, Whereas the thing is with keto is very restrictive. So I found it hard to stick to. Yeah. Um, but I did find it very like quite positive in terms of energy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I have tried it. I don't know if you know um, much about my story and I don't want to bore people by talking about things I've talked about before, but I do think people probably feel a little confused or, my, or might like make assumptions about my experience with it that aren't quite accurate because I, you know, I went from keto and then kind of developed an eating disorder, but it wasn't the fault of the keto diet. And I actually had a relatively good experience. I just also had some bad information 
leading into it that made me think that I had a lot more weight to lose than I actually did or a lot more body fat to lose than I actually did. I got a DEXA scan that um, showed that I had a lot of a lot of body fat and it was actually um, just a bad test, a, b- a bad result. So I, I, oh, I did this really yeah. extreme version of it where I was doing a ton of intermittent fasting and I was taking cold showers every day and like really super restrictive and just not eating enough. So I think the overall experience of keto itself was fine. Like I actually felt good, um, but I just wasn't eating enough and I was training hard and I was kind of burning the candle at both ends and just got myself yeah. into a state of probably red S. I never got diagnosed, but um, definitely had like the relative energy deficiency. And I remember like, you know, did it for months and got to a point where I was in a really rough spot. Um, but again, I don't think that was the fault of, yeah. of the keto diet. I did find it to be, and maybe this is, maybe it was because I wasn't eating enough food. Like maybe if you eat more calories, it gets easier. But I did find it to be very um, nitpicky. Like I, I didn't like how precise and calculated I felt like I had to be. Like I felt like some days I would get it just right and feel great. And then other days I would... Um, you know, not have enough energy and I wasn't sure if I wasn't eating enough fat or was too low carb or wasn't getting enough sodium. It just seemed like there was a lot more moving parts and I've kind of moved towards, like now I eat like a paleo diet. So it's similar in the sense that I eat, you know, meat and fruit and or meat and veggies as like staples and really healthful, um, like one ingredient foods. But I I eat a lot more fruit now and I eat more carbs. Um, And that just kind of, Still, I still feel really good, but everything just feels easier for me personally. So, um, yeah, just for people I mean, that are curious, do what works that's, that's kind of where yeah. I'm at. But yeah, so I'm just kind of curious on one thing as well. Did you find yourself burning out around this period? It's probably quite a personal question, but did you find yourself really struggling with motivation whilst you were also trying to combat your diet at the same time? I did. Interestingly. Not while I was getting really light because I was, I had that like burning desire to climb 514 and to climb a specific route at Smith Rock. And so I was like that motivation, that was my, um, my goal that was such a strong goal that it allowed me to kind of starve myself without even really knowing what I was doing or without meaning to like, so that was, I was actually really, really driven during that chapter and then it was like the two years after that when I realized what had happened, you know, basically I got another test done and realized what had happened and I was way leaner than I thought and was had lost a lot more muscle than I had realized. So I started gaining weight back and um, didn't know how to do it in a healthy way and I didn't know what my body weight should be. And so I just kind of freaked out and like you know, would gain weight and then panic and then restrict and got into this really rough cycle. And that's when I really, um, I I mean, I I barely climbed at Smith for probably two years after that when I was still living in Bend and would, you know, go bouldering in the gym and would lift weights and just try to stay kind of active. But um, I definitely struggled with burnout and really just directionless and directionlessness and like confusion, you know, because I was like, well, I was close to doing this route and I had this goal and now I've gained a bunch of weight and I kind of feel like shit because my strength hadn't caught up yet. Who am I? Like, where, where am I? Where am I going? Like, who am I as a climber? Like, I don't have that same fire anymore. What's wrong with me? Like, I was just really in the mess of all of that for a couple of years. And it, yeah, it kind of sounds tough, man. It was tough. It was a dark time. Yeah. And it kind of sorted itself out just by eventually 
the strength caught back up, my tendons caught back up, my body started like thriving again and feeling a lot more energized at a higher body weight. And I started to believe that I can climb hard things at a higher weight than I'd been at before. Got a lot more muscular, got more interested in like steep roof climbing and things. Um, and now I feel, I feel like I have that same fire back, but, but yeah, it was just disorienting. And, um, I don't, I, it wasn't quite burnout, but, but kind of, you know, there's definitely elements of that and, and periods of that for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, that kind of like roller coaster ride that you went on is quite similar to what I would describe my experience of a burnout. Like, I kind of like mm. would, you know, like I would chill out for like a month or so and I'll panic and I'll be like, oh my God, I need to like go and climb something really hard or something like that. And I would like start training really hard and do it for like two weeks and then kind of like put everything into something and realize I didn't want to do that route. I wanted to do another route and mm. essentially just kind of uh, like a real roller coaster ride quite similar to, you know, obviously it's not the same as what you experienced, but it's probably quite similar in that it was very like similar, yeah. your mind just kind of like is, can't cope with color. It just focuses on black and white. And it's yeah. either like, yeah, it's like, do I, you know, I either do absolutely nothing and play World of Warcraft for hours or I, uh, I don't know, like absolutely um, kind of give myself essentially uh mental health issues by trying to like force myself to do things that I don't want to do. And mm. that's kind of the the way it kind of worked with me. Was that when you uh, were pursuing hard sport climbing? Has, has this been like multiple chapters or was there a distinct burnout chapter for you? What did that look like? Oh, definitely that, that distinct burnout chapter was immediately after Hubble and Serenata. I just kind of bitten off. I didn't bitten off. I hadn't bitten off more than I could chew because I did successfully swallow the bites but um <laughs> to, to kind of uh what has basically happened is i just really struggled processing uh what i went on and i struggled with kind of picking a, a rational goal after that that i actually genuinely wanted to do mm. um because it kind of felt like everything up be like before that was like a stepping stone towards something else whereas when i'd climbed hubble it was like ah. Oh, I've reached the top of the the pyramid mm. and now I'm kind of looking at the top, wondering where the next steps are. Mm. Um, right. And it wasn't until discovering trad really that I realized like, man, there's so much more to life than forcing myself to do routes that I don't want to do. <laughs> Cause I essentially in yeah. the UK, there's not that much good sport. Like we have some, we have some good stuff, but I started to run out of stuff that I wanted to do. Mm. And um, yeah, it was, like there's, there's a lot of mileage stuff, but I really, what I really get a lot out of is like, you know, projects and stuff that takes, you know, multiple sessions, um, which, and you know, like you, you have to really know what you want to do to be able to pick routes like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you want to invest into something, you need to want to do it. Um, which I was struggling with the sport climbing cause I kind of tried most of the hard rates in the country and I kind of felt like not many of them are really, really, um, doing it for me so mm. yeah whereas since getting into trad like most trad routes i get on i'm like oh man this route has so much character it's so cool i just want to um kind of put some time into this and see if i could eventually do it yeah as opposed to like oh i can't wait to do this so i can move on to the next thing and make myself look really cool <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah so, so that's interesting it seems like you found that pure motivation with lexicon and then again with magical thinking and black thistle what happened with rhapsody 
Rhapsody, interestingly, I, I would say that Rhapsody feels more like a sport route than it does a trad route. Like it is, it's entirely on gear. There's no bolts on it or anything, but it's essentially a what. So the way that Rhapsody climbs is you climb a really safe crack called Requiem, uh, which is an E8. Um, and at the top of the crack, there's some gear and you get some gear in and you rest on this ledge, um, which is not like a sit down ledge. It's like a kind of flat hold that you can kind of rest on and i could get like a crappy knee bar there and re relax and then you essentially climb like a really steep head wall uh about five well maybe maybe like five to seven meters something like that so similar kind of height to lexicon and that head wall but there's no gear on it and um but the the wall is so steep and so continuous that if you fall off you just fall into midair and mm. the reason why it was the reason why Dave McLeod ended up hurting his ankle is because he was getting belayed from a ledge higher up mm. than where everybody else had been belayed. So there's less rope in the system. And what he ended up doing was just slamming into the wall really hard. Got it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like being having like a soft catch, mm -hmm. which I mean, this is the thing with first ascents that people don't realize is that this stuff is stuff that you need to figure out. And um, it's repetitions that end up figuring these things out a lot of the time. Mm. And totally yeah yeah um so and what kind of happened with rhapsody is i, I kind of felt like i was just banging my head against the wall and uh, you know what i wasn't getting a lot of mental um kind of i don't know like i, I wasn't getting a lot of like mental pleasure out of it i was just kind of felt like i was having a physical challenge but i wasn't after a physical challenge I was after something that was going to test me mentally mm. and I knew it was hard and I knew it was safe before I started trying it. But the more I tried it, I kept falling off the same move all the time and the conditions get worse and worse. And I just decided like, oh, this isn't fun anymore. Uh, like I might get a lot of press out of this, but it's not going to, it's not doing me any good. Um, so yeah, I just decided like, this is getting a bit much. I'm going to go and try things that, I feel I want to go and try. Mm -hmm. Does that yeah. feel like unfinished business? Do you think you'll go back or do you feel satisfied? Like, no, I, I was, you know, I, it was a challenge and it, it isn't resonating with me. So I'm done with it. How do you feel about it now? Proof be told, I don't know. Um, I actually tried it last week. Um, I had a couple of sessions on it just to try and re-familiarize myself and it went well. I've managed to almost top rope the hard bit in a, a couple of times um or like every go i got very close i didn't actually do it at all but um yeah the conditions weren't great um but then the weather just turned and the thing is with dumbarton is despite it being roadside it's a logistical nightmare to get up to the top and you have to actually trespass to be able to get up to the top of the crag mm. by climbing over the castle walls and um going through the the castle grounds to be able to get to the top of the crag and it you have to, you essentially solo a route to get up onto the castle wall, which is um, like really sketchy. And then you solo like a, another kind of like horrible, like often wet scramble to get up on top of the crag. Damn. And then once you're at the top, you can eventually start setting up your ropes and stuff. But again, it's just like a total pain in the bum. And I just kind of got a bit fed up with this repetitive pain in the bum. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, just kind of fancied better looking routes that weren't eliminates and that's just kind of the way it went because mm. i don't know if you know as well but rhapsody is an eliminate it like it ends up um it's escapable midway through the 
um, head wall, um, which it's not quite as bad as it sounds, but it does. You, you're always aware of it every time you get there, and it's mm. a bit like, like oh man, like it feels a bit like I'm kind of banging my head against the wall for a route that isn't really particularly pure. Mm. But that's not a criticism on the route, I should say. Like it, it's it's a fantastic route. It climbs really, really well. And absolutely, as a as a national trophy of being the world's first E eleven, like absolutely, like I am proud of that route. Um and I think the the uh, our country should be very proud of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me personally, I just think it's makes yeah, sense. I, just, I mean uh, inspiration's very personal, so yeah. yeah, I'm inspired by the route. I'm just not sure if I want to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right on. Yeah, I got you. I think that's the way I, I way I put it. I, I use it as like a bit of training bait. I kind of like if I'm struggling to train. I'm like, oh, yeah, if I'm going to do rhapsody one day, I need to train harder. <laughs> nice. But then I, I nice. then I go and try it, and I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. We don't need to spend a ton of time here, but just out of curiosity, what is your setup for uh, rope soloing when you're trying something like this by yourself? I'm I'm curious because. Dave McLeod uses the shunt, and um, I talked to uh, Robbie Phillips about this. That was interesting. He uses the Taz, the Taz Love Three. Uh, a lot of people in the states use like two devices, like a micro traction and a camp for lift or whatever. But yeah, what, what's your setup for rope soloing? Oh man, I've been criticised from this left, right, and centre. But all I literally do is set up a dynamic line and use a grigri. No um, way! Wow. Yeah, that's literally all I do, and then I you just put the gear in above me um to like stop me swinging out if it's a steep route and or like use like essentially um like redirections hmm. but um, my system's pretty basic and i've never had any accidents and my grigri's never slipped like everyone seems to climb it well and hmm. um it's not a pain I, though to to have to because you have to feed in slack with one hand with the grigri right it doesn't just like slide up the rope like a like a taz yeah, or so a micro track if you coil the rope up at the bottom or mm-hmm. if there's enough rope in the system, it auto feeds. Um, mm. It can be a pain in the ass, but I mean, it's part of. It's just part of working the route. So I feel like it's just if you can do it on a grigri, that it should be a little bit easier when you come to doing it mm-hmm. clean. I guess. Okay. I don't know. I just I, I, I've never really felt the need to use a different system. Like this system works perfectly fine for me, so I'll just continue doing it, and uh, that's that really. That's cool. Um, I mean, but I do appreciate like other people kind of prefer different methods i mean it's got yeah it's it's got some great built-in advantages i mean there's nothing easier to lower on than a grigri as far as like you know if you fall off and want to go down a few meters to try a section again um well exactly yeah yeah, i mean these things i'm like struggling to do the moves on initially so if i'm like struggling to do the moves then you know if i was doing that on a micro traction it would be a complete pain in the ass (laughs) to keep swapping devices and yeah all that whereas on a grigri you can just have total freedom and like i mean i'm usually just sitting there with my earphones in listening to some metal bloody <laughs> you know like dust about on two moves at a time yeah <laughs> like i think people would be really unimpressed by how boring my working is <laughs> what are you yeah. listening to do you have uh go-tos or is it just whatever you feel like oh that yeah day? i'm like dirty lincoln park fan uh lincoln really park. like papa roach <laughs> uh trying to think uh five finger death punch um volbeat (laughs) recently (laughs) yeah no i'm really i'm quite into music actually anna's into the same music as me which is really good nice yeah Yeah, that's (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) that's awesome yeah Uh, we got it's so good yeah that's cool 
What is uh, what is your ultimate dream line? Is there something out there that has been done that is like the pinnacle that you can imagine cl- doing in your climbing? Or if not that, then um, I'd love to hear you describe like the ultimate dream line first ascent, if anything might be out there. This is, I think this is going to be, uh, I think this is going to be a bit of a surprise actually. But one thing that I would really like to do is not necessarily a climbing objective, but more of like a, a remote big wall not necessarily big wall but um um kind of like a a challenge that is quite different to pure physical climbing so like me and anna have spoke about this um line of mountains out in the amazon that we'd like to do at some point and i mean whether we'd ever be able to make this happen i don't know but like yeah there's like these like a skyline of mountains that we'd like to traverse and um it's kind of similar to the fitch traverse i guess but like considerably easier i would imagine but it's in a rainforest full of bitey snakes and (laughs) insects and um dangerous people sometimes and you know i kind of think it sounds like a a really interesting life experience that Mm -hmm. doesn't it whereas um yeah there's a lot of climbs that i want to do as well but i kind of i quite enjoy taking climbing these days as a little bit more organic approach and not necessarily focus too much in the future and just focus on enjoying climbing day to day really mm. um and that does involve short-term projects and some slight, slightly long-term projects but i don't think i quite have the desire to want to um like go and do like absolute like insane multi-year projects and stuff anymore like i've kind of hobble really told me that that wasn't what i enjoy out of climbing mm. yeah gotcha um but yeah, I'd love to travel to the States and do a lot of your your guys' classic like 14 hours and stuff. Like those things look incredible. But I mean, you wouldn't be able, I wouldn't be able to name any of these routes. I've just seen pictures of them and videos and I just think, wow, God, they're amazing. <laughs> and, like Indian Creek, how could you not want to like... Mm. <sighs> do you, have you done much splitter crack climbing? Do you enjoy that? No, I've done very, very little. Mm-hmm. Next to nothing really. Yeah. Um, but... I don't know, man. I just in, I just enjoy climbing for what it is, and I actually kind of really enjoy feeling like a punter on routes <laughs> that I'm really bad at. <laughs> it's nice. just really fun, yeah. yeah. And it, there's nothing more humbling and nothing that like is better, I think, than getting spanked on something that you really should find quite easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a bit better than like knowing that you should perform on something because it suits right. you and everyone wants you to do well. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. It's kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's it's moti- it is. It's it's in it kind of counterintuitive, but it is motivating to inject that from time to time and just go back to playing, you know. It's like how, yeah. how we all got started with it and it's fun to return it's to what, that. Exactly, and that's what people need to remember that climbing is just it's just a adventurous fun activity where we you know, we're learning about movement and we're learning about all these different things and you know, it's hard to learn stuff on stuff that you know you're good at, whereas stuff that you're bad at, you can, you know, you can really feel like you're getting involved in that puzzle like mm. you did back in the back in the day when you first started, mm-hmm. you know, and you can figure things out with your pals. Whereas, you know, if I'm climbing at my limit, there's so few people in the country that can climb at that level that I don't really have much competition, so it can get a little bit, I feel like I'm kind of chasing my own tail, whereas um, the, the good thing is with, I don't know, like me trying some gritstone slabs or, I mean, I did Gaia recently as well, like a famous E8 and 
like again that challenged me like so much mm. and it like does not suit me at all um so and like i learned loads on it i had a great time and it felt like being a bloody classic beginner punter again <laughs> i loved it <laughs> yeah that's awesome that's awesome. Yeah, it seems kind of stupid saying that on an E8, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's going to piss someone yeah. off hearing that you felt like a beginner punter on on guy and still did it. But I hear I hear what you're saying. Your points your points well taken. Um, yeah. Matt, I've just got a few wrap up questions for you. This has been an amazing yeah, conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I like to ask people this one, and I'm sure you've heard me ask it to folks on the show. Um, what is something you wish people spent more time thinking about? I think just people need to spend more time thinking about themselves and less about other people. And, <laughs> and like, to be quite honest, and like, just stop yeah. worrying about what your pals are doing. Stop worrying about your belay partners and all that fancy jazz. Just focus on what you want to do and just go and chase your bloody dreams. Because, mm. man, people spend far too much time thinking about other people. Mm. Yeah, that's my take. I've been guilty of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Up. I've been, been very guilty of that and. You know, I'm a hell of a lot happier focusing on myself than I am focusing on other people. Mm. You know, yeah. positive and negative. You can worry about positive things for people and you can worry about how negative things might affect you, but you can't control any of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And how about you? What are you excited about right now? Do you have a goal right now? Interesting. Um, what am I excited about right now? There's a lot I'm excited about. I want to do everything. I want to travel the world and I want to, <laughs> there's not enough time to do everything that I want to mm, do. Um, I feel that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. me and Anna have got some funnily enough cycle touring stuff coming on and we're, we're hoping to cycle around Iceland's ring road in the middle of February. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, we're, we're just really keen for some absolute disgusting supper fests. And, Are you going to mix um, in climbing or is this just like a biking adventure? No, climbing's not involved at all. It's huh. completely 100% um, <laughs> just a dumb challenge that we thought would be really fun to have a go at. And Are you going to bring uh, portable yeah. hangboards or, or just embrace in, embrace a different life for a while? Yeah, so I actually spent two and a half months off climbing earlier this year um, on a cycle tour again through Tasmania, uh, which is in Australia. And like... Honestly, it was completely eye-opening for me just how much I needed a break from climbing. Mm. And like, honestly, I think I'm going to do this a little bit more often, like just every now and then take a few months off and just focusing on doing something completely unrelated. And I know that sounds a little bit counterproductive, but it's actually the opposite. It makes me feel completely 100% psyched when I come back to climbing and mm. makes me feel driven and motivated and refreshed and I think honestly, so many climbers could benefit from just taking a few months off and just forgetting climbing exists for a bit. And man, like honestly, it changes you really so much. Um, but I, I kind of feel like if you were just like working a job and something like that, it would be counterproductive. But I mean, I was off traveling, so um, right. it was easy for me to forget about climbing for a bit. But yeah, yeah. I also I don't want to kind of um, give off the impression that I don't necessarily care about climbing because I totally do. Right. This is all my way of protecting climbing or what climbing is to me and to stop myself over-obsessing. Mm. Um, and I say over-obsessing because I see it in so many people where they don't enjoy it anymore. They're just doing it, banging their head against the wall and ticking off routes left, right and centre, but they're not enjoying it anymore. And I just want to enjoy climbing for the rest of my life. I don't want to burn out. Yeah. And that part of that is me just 
managing it by just taking a few months off every now and then and doing something completely different. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so cool to hear because we are climbers are so uniquely neurotic, you know, once I think because it's so difficult to really get going with it because most of us, you know, unless you start as a kid, um like we've never done anything like this with our fingers. And so there's like a really slow, long adaptation period and we get better over lots and lots of time with tons of effort. And so it feels as though if we stop, it'll just go all the way back and we'll have to do all that over again. But it's it's really freeing to realize that you can take a ton of time off and kind of just quickly get right back up to where you were. And I still struggle with that a lot. Like I just came back from uh, a huge trip this summer, went to Switzerland and South Africa and um, a lot of people that listen to the show will know this, but I got really sick in South Africa and got kind of got crushed by the last month of that trip and came home exhausted. And um, I barely climbed for almost two months, for like six weeks, I guess, like the last part of the trip. And then for the next month, being at home just was catching up on work and spending time with family and um, it was very busy. That must have been real tough. It, it, was, it was tough, but... I think I didn't want to climb. I think I wanted to take a break. And there was a part of me that felt really at ease with just like, I'm just going to enjoy the weather and go on a walk and not stress out about the fact that it's a beautiful fall day, you know, but, but it was interesting to notice that the entire time, like I, I knew rationally, it's going to be fine. I'll, the motivation will come back. My body will feel better again. I'll be back to training before I know it. I'll be back to climbing hard before I know it there was a part of me that was at ease, but then there was definitely a part of me that was like, you're fucking up. You're like, what are you doing? It's fall. Temps are good. You know, like you should have been training by now. It's just kind of, yeah. it's kind of constant for a lot of us. And you know, I'm like that guilt, isn't it? That guilt. Yeah. That, that like that shooting on ourselves. you know, like I feel sick and I still feel as though I'm blowing it by skipping a hangboard day, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, dude, just, just chill. So anyway, it's, it's really, it's always awesome to hear from someone like you, you who's climbing at such a high level. And, um, you know, it's not like you've dropped off, like you've, you're, you're still climbing really hard and you're able to take these breaks and just kind of absorb them in stride. And you just come, come right back to it. I think that's, can give a lot of people a lot of ease. Um, like it's okay if you take a break. I was amazed actually at how little I lost while on this two and a half month break. Cause I never took a break like this before. And I was definitely concerned and anxious leading up to it. But when I took that break, it was just so good for me. And I come back and I, yeah, I was a little bit unfit, but I mean, it came back like within a month or two. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I immediately got on Rhapsody as soon as I got back and I was within a few weeks, I was leading it. So I can't have lost all that much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously it's going to be different for everybody, but and uh, it's worth me mentioning as well. I did do some maintenance work whilst out in Tasmania. I was squeezing my handlebars on the bike and <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically doing some hangboarding on my uh, using the uh, the brake, the housing for the the brake levers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> nice. It was it it was really, really interesting. Um, like just how little I'd lost. Yeah, and I think it's. I think. Um, I think people should work on not letting that guilt get the better of them mm. because it's ultimately that guilt that ends up destroying climbing passion and motivation mm. really. Yeah. And you need to learn to control it and say, actually, no, I need a break from climbing and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I've got clients as well. And if, if, you know, my clients are telling me I'm unmotivated, I'm really struggling and 
you know, I'll try and motivate them. But then if if I get the impression that they're really actually feeling quite deflated, I'll just be like, look, don't worry about paying me. Take a month off. Go and just enjoy a bit of time with your family. And if you want to come and be coached again in a month's time or six months' time, just let me know. And I end up shooting myself in the foot every single time. But I'm not here to try and ruin somebody else's climbing passion. It's not my place to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff, man. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. Um, Yeah. You're a really insightful guy. You're really well-spoken and I've really enjoyed getting to know you better and and talking with you. So thank you so much for your time today. And I'm very excited to see the film. Let people know where they can follow you, what's coming up with the Brit Rock film, when they can expect to see it and all that stuff. I'll also, I'll, you know, I'll, um, I'll share more information in the outro and stuff with current dates and whenever this publishes and stuff. But, um, but yeah, where can people follow you? What are you up to? And when's this film coming out? Yeah, no problem. Um, I exclusively use Instagram for my posting. I don't use Facebook or any other social media network. So that's literally just Matt Wright Climber. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> original. <laughs> one T. And yeah, one T with Matthew. Uh, and then um, the... Brit Rock premiere is the 7th of November and that's going to be in Sheffield. But then uh, Al's also selling online tickets. So for anybody in the States, that should be quite easy for you to see online. Um, And there's also quite a few premieres. I mean, there's already uh, 52 premieres um, across the globe and Al reckons that's going to double or maybe even triple within the next couple of weeks. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, it's doing really, really well, this... um, Brit Rock premiere and Brit Rock tour. Yeah. Awesome. And Al, it, I think it's worth mentioning, Al is a fantastic guy. He does this completely on his own. Um, he usually has a little helper with him. So we, I, we've been working with a, a guy called um, Alfie Reed. Yeah. Um, and he's a really lovely guy as well. It's just uh, Al's assistant. And it's just, I think people will be surprised at the level of skill, commitment, and hard work that goes into these films. Al's done a fantastic job and really worth a watch for all of these films. It's like some of the best climate footage you'll ever see. Is he making all of them? Yeah, he's made five films this year. That's incredible. Must be a workhorse. Oh man, the guy works hard. Really works (laughs) hard. And he's actually made his own film this year, which is really cool. And he's talking about his own struggles and um, the direction that he's took and how climate's affected his life. And it's really insightful and I think a lot of people would find that really motivating, probably mm. much more so than seeing some guy bloody crushing out nine A's <laughs> or five fourteens. You know, it's mm. um, yeah, probably a lot more relatable seeing um, seeing Al's film as well. Yeah, very cool. Well, I will link to Matt Wright Climber on Instagram in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com along with Brit Rock, where you can find it, where you can find shows coming up near you where you can get your online tickets if you want to watch it online. I think it's going to be available this coming week after this episode publishes. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks again, Matt. I'd love to have you back on sometime. And um, in the meantime, best of luck with uh, with your upcoming adventure with Anna on the bike. And um, yeah, I just wish you the best with your climbing. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for listening as well, everybody. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. 
Hey friends, before you go, quick shout out to all of our sponsors for this episode. As always, you can find links to all of our sponsors and you can see the coupon codes for their products in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com or just by scrolling down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to get great deals on some of my favorite products. So check them out. Scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And as always, I put tons of goodies in the show notes. So for this episode, you can find links to all the things, videos and books we talked about, related podcast episodes, my guests' links, etc. You can find all of that stuff conveniently linked for you at thenuggetclimbing.com. Just find this episode and all of the show notes will be there, including timestamps so you can scroll around and find some of the best nuggets from this interview if you want to listen to those sections again. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I do have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes. They're called follow-ups that I've published so far with past guests from the show. Those bonus episodes are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You can get access to all of those and ad-free episodes and more for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. There's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate all of the support. Happy climbing. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time.